Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hey everybody, this is It Could Happen Here. I am Robert Evans. This is a podcast about things falling apart and sometimes how to put them back together. Uh, today, this is another episode about the war in Ukraine. Um, it's going to be uh, eventually uh, an interview with a Ukrainian anarchist militant who is fighting on behalf of uh, of, of Ukrainian people um, in that conflict. But uh, here's a little introduction first. So anarchists are all about the elimination of hierarchy, and since the state tends to be the hierarchiest thing around, most anarchist activists tend to either seek the destruction of the state or at least snatches of a life lived beyond its bounds. The most joyful moments in anarchist organized protests tend to be those brief liberatory windows where anything seems possible and even, say, middle-class suburban moms might feel briefly like they could tear down the walls of a federal courthouse. So the idea of anarchists joining and fighting in a national military, commanding and being commanded in the hierarchy of a state's defense forces, feels like a pretty big contradiction. 
Yet, when the Russian Federation launched a massively expanded invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, many Ukrainian anarchists announced their intention to fight on the side of their government. Organizations like Rev Dia formed militias, which have been integrated into Ukrainian territorial defense forces. In one statement I found on the website Enough is Enough, a militant representing Rev Dia explained their feelings this way. Ukrainian anarchists are at war with Russian expansionism, fascists, and the government. They have created their own arm and call on us to join them. Every anarchist collective and organization that understands the revolutionary task and the internationalist struggle must transform its general anti-war position into a position of engagement by participating in or strengthening the anarchist Ukrainian guerrilla struggle without suspensions and by attacking the Russian economic and political power. Victory in arms for the anarchists in Ukraine who stand against against Russian imperialism, fascist paramilitary groups, and the democratic government in Kyiv. Solidarity with the Russian and Belarusian anarchists who are crawling in the democratic dungeons trying to stop the war. Let us give space to the people and not to the imperialist dreams that divide the planet into plots. We are forever with the invisible people of the world who are fighting for an inclusive, self-organized, and anti-hierarchical world. So, Anarchists with Revdia and other Ukrainian organizations are very much acting in line with more than a century of anarchist tradition in Ukraine. During the Russian Revolution, famed Ukrainian anarchist warlord Nestor Makhno was forced to make a tough decision. Ukrainian nationalists threatened the central government that had arisen after the fall of the Tsar, and Makhno and his comrades decided to defend the democratic socialist government against the nationalists. From the book Anarchy's Cossack, quote, that decision faced the local anarchists with a problem, for it had them support governmental forces here which, even if they were of the left, were nonetheless potential enemies of the masses' autonomy. Makhno reckoned at the time that, as anarchists we must, paradox or no paradox, make up our minds to form a united front with the governmental forces. Keeping faith with anarchist principles, we will find a way to rise above these contradictions and, once the dark forces of reaction have been smashed, we will broaden and deepen the course of the revolution for the greater good of an enslaved humanity. Roughly one month into the expanded Russian invasion, I had the chance to sit down and interview an anarchist in Ukraine who was participating in the resistance to Putin's regime. We conducted our interview over the course of several days, as his fighting schedule allowed, and we did so over voice messages and signal. His audio quality was thankfully quite good. I have condensed some bits of the interview, particularly my questions, to make things easier to understand, and I moved some stuff around a little bit. Uh, I hope this is still pretty clear. Here's our source introducing himself. What I would start you to tell about my story is, um, let's call me Ilya. I am an anarchist from some neighboring country, uh, but live in Ukraine for several, uh, several years. Uh, I had to leave my homeland because of the political repressions against anarchists there. Uh, and for me, participation in this conflict, uh, it has... Uh, um, several dimensions. Uh, once, like the the first and simplest thing is that um, uh, Ukraine, even though it's like highly imperfect uh, state, like with uh, clear neoliberal stuff and some nationalist and far right influences uh, in the politicum, uh, but still is um, more like gray zone and more like. Um, how to say, pluralistic and free space. Uh, the state here has much less control than in Russia and Belarus, for example. 
I wanted to start by asking them about the elephant in any room where people are discussing left-wing resistance in Ukraine, the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. I think it's important for people to like just talk about Azov and, and, and whatnot and uh, not whitewash what's going on there. But it strikes me that they have a really effective social media campaign and they're, they're sneaking a lot of videos and a lot of combat footage and whatnot out into kind of Western mainstream media without people realizing it's Nazis. Well, to be honest, of course, uh, far right movement is much more massive in Ukraine than uh, any libertarian leftist uh, uh, movements at the moment. This, I think, is obvious for you. Uh, but at the same time, um, sometimes uh, conscious or unconscious pro-Russian propagandists uh, try to portray the situation as uh, if uh, it is Nazi state or something like all the resistance is far right or something. But actually, a uh, general part of the state and also, which is more important, of the grassroots popular resistance uh, is just uh, apolitical. Uh, in sense that, like most of the army, are not in the politics. Even though, of course, we aware that army is a political institution itself, uh, and uh, especially all those people in the villages who are now uh, taking up arms to guard their lands uh, against the occupiers, uh, they are also not uh, politically affiliated somehow. Ilya and many of his comrades see anarchist participation in the struggle against Russia as necessary for two reasons. The most basic is that Putin's regime is a threat to their life and freedom, too. The secondary reason is that if they don't fight, they will have no ability to influence what happens in their country after the war. Today, this uh, invasion, uh, it really constructs the threat uh, for the whole existence of this society, uh, more society than to the state itself. Because uh, this is a kind of attempt to export uh, this totalitarian hell which were constructed in Russia, more or less. Uh, and to confront this, just not let it happen, uh, is already a task, I think. Uh, but of course, to come to, to defend some land against uh, some occupation, uh, for me, is too simplistic uh, for the anarchist and revolutionary approach. Uh, so there come like uh, more detailed reason I would, reasons I would say. Uh, first of all, I really believe that if uh, Putin will be confronted intensively and successfully here, then it's very possible that uh, it will break uh, the spine uh, of this regime in Russia, which may lead to revolutionary changes uh, both in Russia and in Belarus because Belarusian dictatorship uh, exists, like relies uh, uh, very much on um, uh, Putin's support and so on. Uh, and another dimension is that uh, any force which wants to be like really politically meaningful in Ukrainian society uh, should uh, take sides uh, in this conflict. All people who uh, say some dogmatic uh, things like we are against all states, against all wars, this is not enough now. This is not a position now. Uh, and now this is really popular resistance. Like uh, if you do not... If you do not join it for whatever reasons, then you exclude yourself uh, from uh, actual political process because the, the main questions uh, will be like, where are you and where were you in these events? And of course, the right side is to confront this imperialist occupation. 
this can really give an opportunity uh, to like for future and not for future actually already today for organizing and mobilization of revolutionary libertarian forces um, and constructing ourselves as some considerable significant movement like uh, for example now there is this uh, unit of territorial self-defense which anarchists participate in actively um, this is now already around 50 people um, well it was a uh, uh, un like unimaginable uh, at the recent years and months uh, to have some gathering of uh, 50 anarchists anti-fascists and so on uh, as some joint unit but now this is the reality and this mobilization is made uh, because of this invasion actually so this is something that makes sense uh, at my opinion and another interesting thing i think in context of comparing uh, for example uh, far left and far right participating uh, in Ukrainian political life and in current events, that of course for us uh, any collaboration with the state is uh, much more problematic uh, than for the Nazis, uh, because even their like um, ideology and mindset, uh, as far as I can evaluate it, uh, pretty allows them both any relations with the state structures and also any dirty schemes, uh, both with the state with the business and uh, with criminal sphere like um, uh, our approaches uh, are much more puristic uh, which is partly good of course but also have uh, some consequences for us to be uh, much less adoptable as the movement to the real uh, social political economical realities and uh, for example now currently uh, this is uh, still an, a question for anarchists. Uh, should we join, for example, these uh, territorial defense uh, forces, which is, uh, even though somehow militia-like uh, localized institution, but still, of course, uh, like state-affiliated force uh, orchestrated and uh, arranged by the state and subordinated to state army uh, hierarchical system. Um, but we still believe that in current events, um, this participation, like it, uh, less compromise us, but more give us the tools uh, to organize, to get experience, uh, and to get subjectivity, if we can say so in English, like to, to, to become a, really an actor. Um, and uh, still it is within this frame is still possible to maintain um, political independence and even some uh, sort of structural independence. So this is not just people are going and joining the army and that's it. They are now just uh, units. Um, at least up to the moment, this is not our story. Uh, and this is something, uh, at least me personally, reflecting on a lot. First, I would like, you mentioned you came to Ukraine from a neighboring country where repression of anarchists was more severe. I am interested prior to, you know, this stage of the invasion, obviously the first invasion happened in 2014, but prior to this escalation, how would you describe state repression against anarchists in Ukraine, the degree to which anarchist organizing was opposed by the state, by the police in Ukraine? Um, and then the follow-up question to that would be, 
as you guys saw this war building, could you elaborate on some of the discussions that happened about what to do, about whether or not to form militias, whether or not, or to what extent to fight alongside the government? Um, so about state repressions against uh, anarchists in Ukraine in recent years, uh, I would say that uh, they were, of course, um, uh, much less hard than, for example, in Belarus and Russia. Um, also, because, um, like, for different reasons, because of, uh, in general, of course, uh, more pluralist political culture and political situation in Ukraine, but also partly because uh, anarchist uh, movement uh, in after Maidan period was not that organized and not that combative to really draw drive attention of the state uh, to itself. And also, uh, what I need to say that uh, in maybe 2019 and 20, uh, this attention uh, grew dramatically after several direct actions uh, were taken by anarchists, uh, for example, some sabotage against uh, uh, cell phone towers of some Turkish-affiliated company when uh, Turkey invaded Rojava in uh, the late autumn of 2019, and also several actions against uh, some police stations. Uh, some uh, of these statements uh, were uh, placed in anarchist fighter uh, website and telegram channel. Uh, and so uh, police and secret services got, how to say, uh, very energetic in their attempts to find uh, the people who did this, uh, even though they didn't succeed, actually. Uh, so several house raids taken place. Uh, they also tried to depart uh, one anarchist from Belarus, Alexei Borenkov, uh, who uh, stayed in Ukraine for several years while decided to move out uh, from uh, Lukashenko uh, regime. And so... Uh, uh, but they didn't depart actually, and also their house raids were not successful, so they didn't succeed in the in their repressions. So in the last couple of years, uh, this picture, uh, I would say vegetarian picture of uh, uh, zero attention of the state to anarchist movement, it changed. Uh, so it started to be like different way. Before it actually also was some uh, direct actions uh, believed to be related with uh, uh, revolutionary action anarchist group. Uh, it was, if I am not mistaken, uh, around 2017 and so on. Uh, and uh, this also uh, were somehow um, prosecuted uh, by, by Ukrainian secret services. Uh, also about uh, organized participation of different anarchist faction uh, in uh, the current resistance against the Putinist imperialist aggression, uh, like about the most organized initiative you all in most numbered, you already know, but there are um, several others, uh, smaller groups, uh, like more like affinity groups or several friends participating in uh, different units. We even cannot count it uh, because we even don't know about everyone who participate.
At this point, he started talking about an anarchist militant named Igor Wallachow, who had been killed by a rocket in Kharkiv a few days earlier. Before the war, Wallachow had expressed a desire to organize a network of co-ops across Ukraine. He'd also been active in providing support for anarchists jailed in Russia. Ilya referred to him as having been martyred. He was participating, I don't know, either individually or with uh, some of his friends from Kharkiv. But, for example, I knew nothing about their group and their participations. Uh, There is also Black Flag uh, anarchist group uh, from Lviv, which now, as far as I know, participating in uh, territorial self-defense of Kiev. At least they released uh, several photos and some short statement. Uh, This is something organized, which I know about. And apart from that, I know just, as I already uh, told you, uh, several uh, affinity groups, groups of friends. The overall picture he painted of anarchist resistance in Ukraine was extremely atomized, due in part to pre-war concerns about avoiding state repression and the myriad doctrinal differences between different kinds of anarchists. The war seems to have had a catalyzing effect, which has made larger militant anarchist organizing possible for the first time in recent memory. Ilya was cautiously optimistic about this, but he and his comrades also recognized a danger here. We are trying to avoid attention from the state services, from secret services, uh, even though we still have to collaborate uh, somehow with the military hierarchy and so on in this situation. Uh, But of course, we understand uh, that uh, if we will uh, attract uh, undesirable attention, then probably uh, some forces would try to destroy us or Uh, somehow assimilate, uh, subjugate us. Uh, None of these scenarios uh, are good for us, and we're aware of it. So we try to have some publicity, and at the same time to act ourselves in the way uh, which will not uh, drive repressive attention to us, uh, like immediately. Uh, So up to now, within this frame of territorial defense uh, and uh, like some civil volunteer activities and some other quite conventional activities of participating uh, in this conflict uh, against uh, the Putinist side, uh, we believe that uh, we can uh, take the ground uh, for the new conceptions and programs of like of libertarian cause and also uh, some organizational developments like some organized structure uh, which are of course, not necessarily should be illegal from from the very uh, first steps, uh, but to establish some organizational basis and maybe hopefully ideological basis, uh, which will help us to uh, act more actively uh, both during the war and after war. Could you go into a little more detail about the ways in which you, you all do, your units do kind of interface with the state? I went on to ask how they organized their combat units, and whether or not this reflected their broader beliefs about horizontal organizing. His basic answer was that the militias have to operate within a military command structure, and thus have to be broadly organized in the same way conventional military units are. However, being irregulars, their life outside of battle is much less regimented than what regular soldiers experience. Uh, So, about uh, military hierarchy... Uh, in general, of course, uh, territorial uh, defense forces are uh, uh, set by the state and they are included into 
um, the general structure of a military hierarchy of regular army. Uh, in this sense, we are, of course, uh, generally not autonomous. And uh, um, what is, uh, what's been issued by superior command, uh, we should implement in life and should um, fulfill these orders. Uh, however, now, Territorial Defense Forces, I would not speak about uh, all of them because I limited uh, since the very start of uh, war uh, within uh, my own experience uh, with uh, this unit. Uh, these uh, forces uh, have uh, like a lot of time for constructing uh, itself, like uh, our internal life, not that much regulated uh, by the uh, higher command. Uh, and uh, also, uh, there is a, a sort of space of communication uh, with some uh, commanders which are a little bit higher than us. Uh, so we have like good people uh, who, our comrades, who set this opportunity for us to get organized within this frame of territorial defense. This was just our old friends uh, who decided uh, to join um, some territorial defense structure as officers uh, already before uh, this situation started to happen. Um, so I think uh, these people do a really good job and um, they provide for us uh, options uh, to feel ourselves uh, like comparatively free. Of course, not in operational sense because uh, uh, like operational um, frame is being set by the higher command and like as one picture, one scheme. And um, in this aspect, we, of course, uh, just the one of the elements of the general plan of the fighting, uh, the Putin's regime invasion here. Um, so, I mean, um, yes, as a unit, we are uh, governed by the military command. Uh, but this is really rarely that we see uh, anyone uh, apart, uh, any one of some uh, officers or, I don't know, generals or somebody else uh, from above the military hierarchy. Uh, we here um, now occupy it with uh, training, with uh, organizational constructing and with, uh, uh, like, uh, improving our internal life, uh, not being, like, a really 100% orchestrated uh, by any uh, military uh, military hierarchy people. Um, so what about the internal structure? It is still uh, supposed to be organized uh, on the traditional uh, army uh, scheme. So every section has a commander, a unit in general uh, has a commander, uh, and this is not an elected people. This is not like uh, really controlled uh, from uh, from below people. Uh, maybe unfortunately, or maybe this is necessary in the current situation. This is really hard to estimate, to evaluate at the moment. Uh, in this manner, our internal structure in sense of like military structure is uh, more or less traditional for the territorial defense. Uh, at the same time, uh, of course, we have uh, more democratic internal culture. Uh, in general, territorial defense is uh, people uh, mostly organized on local basis and also out of volunteers. So people who uh, came here uh, on their goodwill and not on some conscri conscription 
or some contract which uh, gives you a certain money or privileges. Uh, so because of this, uh, you already supposed uh, to be somehow more free uh, and more up to express your opinions um, and so on. And of course, we as uh, somehow um, leftist affiliated anarchist uh, uh, unit, um, of course, we uh, encourage the internal discussion. Uh, everyone, including all the commanders inside uh, our regiment, are subjects to critic and uh, discussion, um, even though maybe final words uh, in the operational uh, questions uh, are up to these people. Uh, and also it's important that uh, we maintain a total political autonomy in sense that all the groups and individuals who, constructs, uh, who construct the unit uh, we are part of, uh, they um, like absolutely free to express uh, their analysis, political analysis and uh, conceptual conceptualization of uh, both these events and our participation in them uh, according to their like analysis, their attitude, and so on. I also asked what it was like to fight ostensibly on the same side as neo-Nazi elements like Azov. While Ilya and his unit are not anywhere close to the Azov battalion, I wanted to know how he and his comrades dealt with the weird reality of being in the same broadside as people they might have battled in the street at one point. I would say that uh, before war, of course, uh, there was uh, a lot of tensions uh, between uh, fascists and us, uh, not directly with uh, Azov, because Azov is um, like military unit, like this is not the guys you meet and fight uh, in the streets. Uh, but of course, there is like, um, they uh, try to set like their own, how to say, mafia political empire, I would call it, uh, or mafia. Like uh, they had some businesses, uh, some criminal uh, stuff, uh, some patronage from the interior ministry, uh, and also uh, very different, um, how to say, far-right groups, which uh, the leaders of uh, so-called Azov movement, which is much broader than uh, Azov uh, battalion itself, uh, they tried to utilized and instrumentalized to reach their own goals. Uh, and uh, with some of these groups, uh, of course, we had like just street fights. For example, the elements closed uh, to this Azov movement, they try to influence a lot the Belarusian uh, diaspora, like oppositional diaspora in Kiev. Uh, for example, uh, in the one year uh, anniversary of the protests of uh, 2020, in Belarus, uh, there were uh, there was fight uh, in Kiev between anarchists who came to participate in demonstrations, uh, in this demonstration, and the Nazis who attacked them, uh, in uh, like aiming to somehow push them out uh, from the Belarusian movement uh, to influence it in their own way, like also just. Uh, Usual street confrontation also took place all this time. There is um, quite visible and active Antifa movement uh, in Kiev, which confronted Nazis uh, on the streets uh, and uh, blocked uh, sometimes uh, um, several of their like initiatives uh, and uh, so on. Uh, and also, of course, informational and uh, propaganda struggle. Uh, was held by us by us uh, during all this time since Maidan and of course before as well. 
About the current um, military situation, like, of course, uh, we are now actually a part of one army with uh, uh, right sector, Azov, uh, and so on people. We are under the same uh, military command, uh, and uh, if we will be tasked to fight in the same place, uh, the same enemy, we will be uh, actually, um, like, at the same, uh, like, part of the barricade. Uh, but... Uh, this is a situation we need to deal with, like um, there are different opinions uh, amongst uh, our comrades and here uh, about Azov and all the far-rightists, uh, they differ from that they are actually our enemies, like uh, both now and also in any future uh, Ukraine, in any future scenario, because these people promote like quite obviously absolutely opposite uh, political and social goals than we. Um, uh, other people say that uh, uh, another, like other people say that uh, now there is um, how to say a general deadly threat uh, we are facing, and we should fight uh, regardless of left and right and something like this to fight the imperialist invasion. Uh, but I personally, me, I do not support this uh, second uh, assumption and position. I see this quite not really politically smart, at my opinion. But what we here can agree on is that if we want to confront uh, Nazis uh, and the far-right parts of uh, the Ukrainian political and also military spectrum, uh, then we need to develop our own strong structure, our own strong actor. Uh, and also this um, somehow connected with the question about PR. You mentioned that like we need our own PR, our own publicity and media work, and also our, first of all, our own uh, conceptions and uh, ideological uh, blueprints, which we can um, suggest to Ukrainian society and present both uh, inside Ukraine and abroad. Uh, and this is the work, uh, this is the challenge uh, and duty which we uh, need to fulfill. And uh, hopefully, like not hopefully, but actually, uh, we are working on this uh, already now. So uh, if you want uh, to combat Azov, uh, now is uh, not the time maybe to accuse them uh, in some public statements, but this is time to develop alternative structure uh, which will be able to really confront uh, this reactionary currents. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. 
Bonus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year. Equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that you have heard me introduce like probably, well, probably like 70 or 80 times by now. But you, 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 yeah, you, you have heard me introduce this podcast enough times that you probably know what it's about. If you don't, it's about things falling apart and then putting it back together again. And today we are doing a historical things tried to, Go back together and then fell apart again. Episodes and with me, I'm I'm your host Christopher Wong, and with me is uh, Nicholas Scott, who's a PhD candidate in Latin American history at UVA. Uh, Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to have you. And today we're going to be talking about something that we've we've mentioned before on a few other episodes that that we've done about Chile and about the Allende period, but I think. Like well, we definitely have not given enough attention, and I think gets less attention in the sort of mainstream like left analysis of, of what happened to Allende and what was going on in that period, which is the Cordones. And Nick has written about this a lot and is also writing more about this and is doing research 
actually do, do, do you do you care do you mind if i mention that you're in chile doing research right now no totally i'm you know that's where i am i'm here uh two years after the pandemic took me away i've finally been able to come back uh, and resume my research yeah and so nicholas i think in your work the thing that i think is is different about it than a lot of the the stuff that you'll read about Allende and about the Cordones is the sort of historicization of it. And so I I, wanted, I was wondering if we, if we can start back, I guess, in the 60s and talk a bit about the sort of political situation that gets you to this sort of revolutionary moment. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that uh, it's important that we start at an earlier moment uh, to really understand uh, how the Cordones emerge as a specific um, culture, a specific urban space across the city of Santiago. Uh, you know, the, the English translation of, of the Cordones Industrialis would essentially just be industrial belts. So you can think of these as sort of sectors of the city uh, where the majority of sort of heavy industry had been based. Um, and then these sectors themselves were sort of remnants of the 19th century, uh, specifically the railroad lines that would uh, sort of the, the main thoroughfares into the city of Santiago from the countryside. Um, you know, over the course of the early 20th century, uh, as you have the development of industry in, in Chile and in Santiago specifically, these are the same areas then where these uh, factories are, are being developed because you have pre-existing sort of transportation networks that they're able to take advantage of. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, industrialization uh, happens sort of in fits and starts uh, in, in the history of Chile. Uh, and the other sort of problem is the, the problem of transportation itself. So, for example, in the 1930s, there's an urban plan that gets developed for Santiago Centro, uh, or the, the central part of, of Santiago. Uh, and they bring in an Austrian urban planner, Karl Brunner, to help with this. Uh, and while Karl Brunner essentially tries to do for Santiago um, what Hausmann did for France, right? Widen boulevards, uh, make the city more accessible to new forms of transportation, right? Ideally the car. Uh, buses, things of that nature. Uh, the problem is, is that he limited his uh, work and his studies, as I said, just to the center of Santiago itself. Uh, the other problem is, is that once Brunner leaves Santiago, the plan that's actually put into effect um, isn't necessarily all of his plan. It was sort of a patchwork that legislators um, sort of pick and choose from when they put this plan into effect. And so in between the 30s and the 1960s, you know, a lot is happening. Uh, primarily, you have these sort of twin processes of industrialization, sort of rapid industrialization that's taking place. But you also have this other process, which is uh, rural migration, sort of internal migration. And this isn't a process that's limited to just Chile, right? This is a region-wide process that's happening all across Latin America. Uh, and you're having sort of two uh, factors at play in this migration, right? You're having the push factor from the countryside, right? The lack of opportunity, lack of jobs, lack of secure employment um, from the countryside. And then you're also having the pull factor, which is, you know, these industries that are springing up in the city, as well as the sort of infrastructure that a city would afford relative to the countryside. Uh, and these two processes sort of come to a head in the 1950s um, in Chile. And by the end of the 1950s, uh, it's clear to a growing set of people, um, including Juan Pariochia, who is an architect, um, that something needs to be done. There needs to be a new urban plan for the city of Santiago. Uh, and this urban plan 
what they try to do is it's the first time that there's a sort of intercommunal, uh, which communal in this sense would be a rough translation to municipality um, in English. So it's really the first sort of intermunicipal urban plan that tries to link networks together. And this is actually the first time that this word uh, cordon industrial appears in like an official government document, right? That's the first time um, that urban planners themselves are thinking about zones of the city that are going to be specifically for industry. And so the idea is that they want to move a lot of the industry that has sprung up in those intervening years from the early 20th century uh, that was located more in the center of the city. They want to move it out of the center of the city, you know, largely for things of pollution, safety, all of the things that go along with heavy industry. They want it further on the periphery. Uh, and so that's part of this urban plan that uh, essentially tries to zone, basically zone um, these, uh, these sectors. Uh, and so that's really where my dissertation starts. That's where my research really sort of starts the stories in um, the late 1950s, early 1960s, when these urban plans are taking effect. And so what I'm interested in then is, you know, how did the creation of these specific sectors of the city as industrial zones, how did they then give rise to an urban culture uh, that will then manifest itself uh, in a very revolutionary moment once Allende comes to power. Yeah, and, and I think that that's an interesting way to look at it because I think, you know, because the, the 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 process of sort of industry moving from the center of the urban core outwards is something that happens really across the world, although mostly after that period. And, and that, that that was one of the th- one of the things that struck me about it. That's interesting. That I want to ask you about, which is. So to, to what extent is this is this a different process than the kind of like you know the, the kind of suburbanization that you see of, of industry in the US for example in, 19, in like the 1980s or is it closer to well you know I've, I've talked I've talked about this I guess on the show in, in the Chinese context too where you have I mean mostly pollution stuff has seen like some industry sort of like I mean just literally getting pushed into, into rural areas is it is it like is is it like those same kind of impulses or is there a different kind of um like relation i mean like how how far out of the city like is this stuff like getting pushed to that's a great question it's a wonderful question um and you know it is actually important this is important to remember that at this time the city of santiago um you know just outside the city of santiago is is still largely rural right Where, where the first cordon will emerge on the southwestern side of the city is, is still a largely rural part of the city itself. Uh, and so it is very similar to the dynamics that you're describing in that it is pushing you know, away from where people are living, right? To more rural places where there is more land, both to build, right? So there is the availability of space, uh, but there's also less people living in that space. So from the planner's perspective, uh, it's considered better because the sort of um, you know chemical and heavy metal runoffs from a lot of the metalworking factories, yeah. all of these things, and the pollution from smokestacks, et cetera, um, you know, it, are less harmful. The problem then becomes, however, um, that the as I mentioned, the rural migration and people that are migrating to the city, you know, there's not space in the center of the city for these people to live. Right. So they're moving into these same areas. So in some senses, the sort of historical dynamics of the region are undercutting the sort of success of the planners when it comes to making these zones away from the city itself. 
Um, and I guess I guess that that would be something also that that's interesting about this, which is that I think because like you know the the sort of like decentralization of industry and the push into rural areas, I think largely did not produce a kind of like radical working class culture. But 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 it seems like you have this countervailing factor here, which is that you have a bunch of people who are like who are, who are coming into industrial work for the first time out of the countryside which tends to be a very radical faction like is 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 that one of the things that gives you this sort of radical culture instead of the kind of like total disintegration of the class that you see in the sort of later versions of this this is such a beautiful question and this this question really lays at the heart of my research so if we scope out just for a bit and think about this historiographically uh, in Chile, there is a vein of historiography that is very concerned with these rural migrants, which once they arrive in the city are referred to as pobladores, right, which we can roughly translate as sort of urban poor, right? Um, and they're considered a sort of capital S social subject that is distinct from a worker or from a working class um, from a sociological point of view, right? Um, and the reason this is, is because a lot of them, um, while they are workers, you know, they are part of the working class functionally, their sort of social concern and the social movement that is bound up or known as the sort of poblador movement is a movement for housing, right? Because they are arriving at these sort of vacant parts of the city, um, the they bring with them the sort of, as you mentioned, their own histories of struggle from the countryside, uh, of which the sort of main tactic is the toma or seizure, right? And so what they will do when they arrive in these places of land is that they will seize these lots and they will erect a structure on it. Uh, in doing so, then they would use that to stake a claim to pro at, as a claim of property rights, right? As a claim for their own proper home and everything that would go with it within um, within a city infrastructure, right? Utilities, sewage, et cetera. Um, that's what they would leverage then as a claim for that. And so my project is essentially trying to break down this analytic barrier that has separated the poblador from the worker in the historiography, specifically in the historiography of things like the Cordones and the popular unity years during Allende. Because as I mentioned, many of these people, once they're moving to the cities and you know moving into what would be referred to as either campamentos or poblaciones, uh, you know, they're looking for work and they're finding work at a lot of these factories that are nearby where they're moving. Now in doing so, however, they're coming into contact, they're sort of mixing with uh, the older generation of um, migrants that migrated from the north of Chile, right, from the mining sector in the north of Chile following the Great Depression, which is the sort of historical birth of the labor movement in Chile, the nitrate sector um, in the far north of Chile, which, you know, following the development of sort of synthetic forms of explosives, uh, nitrates are not saltpeter specifically is not as high in demand anymore. Uh, so you have a lot of uh, people migrating to the city to begin working in industries there, right? So those sort of older working class who also have their own sort of history of struggle, history of tactics, et cetera, and this newer uh, form of worker, the poblador, right, are mixing and they're sort of mixing in these areas in specific. And that uh, to me is why it's so important to think about the Cordones as more than just an organization that emerges in the early 1970s and really think about them as a space, as a geographic space 
that uh, develop their own unique forms of local culture informed by these larger, more macro historical processes. Yeah, that, 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 that seems like a much more, I don't know if, I don't know if productive is the right word, although it is, but I think, yeah, I I think that is a, 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 a better way of thinking about it than what you usually see, because yeah, that, that kind of, the, the fact that yeah the, the the fact that you have multiple different essentially like so you have you have multiple different so it's like sociological classes mixing you have you have their tactics sort of fusing and that developing its own culture that's that's distinct i think from a lot of the you know because this this, this is a this is a period of time like the the late 1960s early 1970s is like the golden age of the factory occupation and I think you know. I think you, you you can draw similarities between that and, and between the Cardones, but I think I don't know. I mean, it, 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 Italy is the version of this that, that that I know the best, and that one I guess sort of also has a similar dynamic. Of you, you get you get a bunch of uh, you, you have this mixing of of sort of the old urban working class, but then you have a bunch of um, yeah, you, know, you have this huge labor migration from from the south from the rural areas that that mixes in there. And I, I I'm wondering, I guess like. When when you talk about sort of the culture of this, how how much of that is something that you think is like a a, a distinct product of like this exact configuration of of sort of social classes hitting each other, and to what extent it's kind of like a process that we've that you 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 find in other places where you have uh you have these sort of migrant worker like first generation migrant worker bases hitting these sort of older industrial working classes? Yeah, no, I think that you're spot on, right? I think that this is um, a, a larger global history, right? This is a moment in which you are having a lot of migration from countryside into the city worldwide, right? You have a lot of French intellectuals at this moment thinking about sort of what does it mean that the city is perhaps becoming the new focus, the sort of new locus of social movements and social actions. You know, what does it mean that the city is dominant over the countryside um, and things like that? What I think is different or not necessarily different, but perhaps unique in the Chilean case um, is that this is, a, you know, you have a, a, a culture in Chile uh, that is known the world over for its political culture, right? Everyone at this moment was thinking and talking politically uh, and talking about big, you know, grand ideas of politics, not just, you know, sort of everyday politics, but the, how did everyday politics inform these larger sort of social struggles, right? This is still a moment when socialism is on the table, right? Um, and so you have, you know, not that this is different than other places in the world. Clearly, as you mentioned in Italy, socialism is very much still on the table. Communism is very much still on the table there as well. Um, but in Chile, what is different is that there is this idea that one could perhaps legislate socialism, right? Or that one could use the means of democracy to achieve socialism, right? That's what's going to make the Allende government so unique in this moment. Um, but what also makes the Cordones unique is this sort of relationship between social space and physical space in the city. So for example, the very first Cordon that emerges in 1972, Sirios Maipu, as I mentioned earlier, on the southwest of the city, that one as I mentioned, because it had such close contact with the rural sector on that edge, 
had a lot more solidarity between rural laborers and factory laborers, such that by 1973, you have factory laborers going out of their factory and helping rural laborers seize their properties and hold their properties um, away from the, the, the landowners, essentially, right? And claiming sort of a redistributive, um, you know, land for those who work it type of strategy. This is, say, different from the cordon that my dissertation is focused on, Vacuna Macena, which, as, as I mentioned, a much larger segment of pobladores living nearby it, right? Uh, and so you have a much larger solidarity between the pobladores and between factory workers. And what makes that even more unique in this case is the role of the Catholic Church. And this is really one of the sort of new things that my dissertation is trying to do is what is the role of the Catholic Church here? So, for example, the Catholic Church uh, historically within the his and within the historiography as well, um, has always been associated with the Poblador movement, right? Because of this sort of connection to the countryside, because of the church's sort of, uh, you know, missionary kind of work and going out into the popular, you know, poorer populations, especially following Vatican II, um, that uh, in which they begin to sort of have more outreach uh, into the poor sectors. Um, but it's never really seen or rather very few scholars have thought about or looked at what does this mean then for those individuals who may have lived in a población, but who worked in a factory? In other words, what was the relationship between the sort of social pastoral message of the church and the sort of socialism of a factory worker? Uh, and in the case of the Vacuna Macena, there's actually very strong links here. So specifically the San Cayetano Parish, which is located just to the west of the Cordon proper, um, was, was fundamental in helping some of the workers um, establish unions uh, in, in the Cordon. So, for example, the Sumar textile factory, which was functionally a city unto itself. This, this uh, textile company uh, had a series of different factories within uh, its property. So it had a cotton plant, it had a nylon plant, it had a silk plant, and it had a polyester plant. And each of these different plants then each had their own um, unions. And uh, in Chile, in the labor code in Chile from the 1930s, there were two different types of unions per uh, factory or per plant. You had the industrial union, which we could think of as the blue collar worker union, uh, and then you had uh, empleados union, which we can think of as a more white collar uh, union. These would be the sort of professionals in the factory, the sort of technicians, uh, the engineers, right? Not so much the manual laborers, but everyone else in the factory. And in the case of Sumar, specifically the cotton plant itself, um, in the late 1960s, when they're trying to found their union for the first time, they don't have anywhere to go to find it, to, to found it, right? Because they can't do it in the factory itself because management and the bosses will crack down on it. They don't have their own local yet because they haven't founded a union. And so what they ultimately do is they reach out to the parish priest in San Cayetano who is, you know, who offers them help and in doing so offers them a space to hold their first union vote. Uh, and that's actually how the union of Sumar gets founded. Now, Sumar will go on to play a major role both in the Cordones and then after the Cordones during the dictatorship. It's a, it's a very, um, very important factory uh, in, in this history. Um, but it's often overlooked that, you know, the church played a very fundamental role in the sort of larger history of the working class formation of the Sumar workers. I mean, it brings us to one of the things about this period that's, I guess, 
becoming to be better understood, but I think if you're a person who has not spent time looking at this, might look kind of weird, which is that, yeah, the, the, it's just that the Catholic Church in this period, in a, in a lot of Latin America, like, takes, I mean, especially after Vatican II, like, it, it takes this, like, very hard left turn that, yeah, I mean, ha- has all of these causes that, like, you know, like, you get, like, the, the Italian version of it is, like, you get a bunch of priests who are just, like, like like clergymen literally doing kidnappings of like random government officials and i think yeah i i I guess in 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 this context what what's interesting to me i guess is yeah like how how much okay so like what is the the you're talking you're talking about the sort of like the, the the sort of pastoralism of of this this sort of like social gospel message is 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 there is there like a divide between the way the church is working in the city and the way it's working in the countryside or is it just sort of like it's all shifting left but they're more the 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 influence of the church is larger in among sort of rural and natural people Oh, that's actually a really good question. And this is actually where I'm in the midst of sort of trying to figure this out specifically. Um, for the past three weeks, I've actually been working in the church archives here in Santiago. Um, and so that's actually the documents that I'm sort of sifting through as as we speak. Um, and so one thing I can say for certain as of now, of what I've been able to sort of uncover is that, you know, the church was not homogenous and it certainly wasn't monolithic, not in Latin America and definitely not in Santiago. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the region itself, following Vatican II, you have the Episcopal Conference of Latin America's second conference that takes place in the 1960s uh, in Medellin. And that's where the sort of li- the idea of liberation theology is born, right? Following Medellin, then in Chile, the, com- the Episcopal Conference of Chile then is basically tasked with determining a way to fit its own pastoralism, its own sort of pastoral plan within these new structures that they, you know, are a party to because they are part of this larger conference in Latin America itself. And so, you know, one thing that I have uncovered in the documents is that this is very much, you begin to see a divide amongst the the bishops, amongst the church hierarchy here that um, are very, you know, interested in following this new plan of action, but they're also wary of some of the discourse that is surrounding this. So one example that comes to mind here is the idea of liberation itself, right? We often talk about liberation theology, and we often talk about it as though it was just sort of accepted wholesale by the church in Latin America. Well, a lot of the documents that I'm encountering here are there's great debate over the use of liberation specifically because the idea of liberation is so tied up with Marxism. Yeah. Right. And that is, you know, at this time, the Catholic church as a global institution and Marxism as a global ideology are seen as antithetical. And here, the idea that in the church's view, at least from these documents, the, the idea of Marxism that it's talking about when it's using Marxism is very much the Soviet Union, yeah. right? It's very much the sort of atheistic approach to the church, to religion that comes out of the early form of Marxism, Leninism from early 20th century. And so there's a great debate on whether or not to use liberation. And ultimately, you know, the, those supporting this discourse went out 
Um, and, and it is decided that liberation will be the words and the sort of discourse that the parish priests um, will use. But the other big thing that comes out of this, in addition to this sort of discourse of liberation, is this new idea of um, Catholic base communities, right, is this whole new framework for um, sort of understanding a Christian community, right? Prior to this innovation of the base community, you know, a, a Christian community was defined by the hierarchy of the church, right? You have the sort of congregation, you have your parishes, you have the different um, sort of structural and bureaucratic uh, um, designations that sort of link from a parish upward um, to the sort of church hierarchy itself. Uh, but the base community essentially is saying that, you know, wherever a few people gather and are studying the word of God or reading scripture or having theological debates, that that should be considered, you know, part of the church, um, should be considered that part of the church. And so in that sense, we can look at, say, San Cayetano Parish and the work that it's doing with workers and the Sumar factory. And sort of this has me thinking about, you know, what does it mean uh, you know, what do these base communities look like in practice? Can, is it possible for us to conceive of workers who are reaching out to their local priest for assistance as perhaps their own Christian base community? Or furthermore, you know, at this time in Chile, in addition to the leftist political parties, the socialists and the communists, which is, you know, a majority of workers, the Christian Democrats are also a, a large force, right? In 1964, President uh, Eduardo Frey is elected as a Christian Democrat, and he's the sort of what will initiate a process that will culminate with Allende's election in 1970. Um, and by that, I mean, he initiates what he refers as to a revolution in liberty, um, which is sort of a communitarian reformism that is essentially seen as perhaps forestalling a Marxist revolution, a socialist revolution from taking place. But it's incredibly popular amongst working class and workers. Um, and the Christian Democrat Party itself was a, a very wide ranging party that encompassed right-wing elements, but also left-wing elements. Yeah. Can, um, can we, can we talk a bit, a bit more about like what the Christian, Christian Democrats are? Because this is a thing that like doesn't really exist anymore, but was, I think like a, a very important player. Like I mean, there's, there's, there's very powerful Christian democratic parties in Europe. There's very powerful Christian democratic parties like across Latin America. Yeah. Can we, can we talk a bit about like what that is and how that's different from like, you know, how, how it's different from just like your, your generic, your generic sort of socialist party and how it's different even from your sort of like, I don't know, your like labor party, social Democrats. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a, this is a great question and you're right. This isn't something that is sort of exists in the present moment. So it does seem very foreign to us. Um, but really what the, the sort of wager that the Christian Democrats make is that, you know, in theory, they agree for the need for structural change, right? In theory, they get alleviation of poverty, a more, uh, a more just distribution of wealth, right? But their ideas of justice and thing, and this is where the Christianity part of the Christian Democrat comes in, right? Is that it is justice as understood in a Christian sense of justice, right? Not in a sort of more radical egalitarian sense of justice that say a socialist or a communist would believe in. It, you know, so for a socialist or a communist, the sort of motor of history is class struggle, right? For a Christian Democrat, the motor of history is God and his son, Jesus Christ, right? And that is the sort of 
would be, I guess you could think of as the, the main difference. And then how that plays out in practical terms would be in a, for a communist or a socialist, right? You want a sort of radical communism, dictatorship of the proletariat, these types of forms, uh, a very stagist movement through history. For a Christian Democrat, however, it's much more of a communitarian ethic, right? It's much more of a harmonization between, say, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, rather than an overthrowing and an eradication of the bourgeoisie by the proletariat, as it would be for, say, a socialist or a communist. Yeah, and and I guess that that's something I want to, like, I, I want to move a bit to talking about Allende briefly because I think that's an interesting. One of the things you're talking about earlier is Allende talking about, okay, well, we can have a democratic path to socialism. And what's what's very interesting to me about both Allende and what's happening in the Cordones is that like, okay, so like that that, that is a that, that idea has been around for a very long time. And like there are a lot of people who take power who are like, okay, we're taking a democratic path to socialism. And then, you know, like, like a lot of Weimar, like Germany, right, is, is ruled by by the, the German Social Democratic Party. And it's like, well, you look at what they do and they're not really like socialisting. They're most, I mean, you know, they're, 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 do, they're doing things like, like they're doing things like welfare reform. But that's a very different thing. Well, and you know, and you, you can see like the Labour Party in, in in the UK, for example. Well, like okay, well they'll, they'll nationalize industries, right? But you you don't see the kind of movement against like the the you, you don't see the kind of movement against property and the, the movement against sort of like like you, you don't see an actual attempt to like eliminate the bourgeoisie as a class in in the same way that you do about Chile. And so I was wondering, like, what what makes like what was it about this moment that someone who claimed that actually comes into power and starts doing it and starts doing it in a way that's not just the sort of like, you know, when most like 90% of the time when someone nationalizes something, right? It's okay. So instead, instead of having a boss that is instead of having a boss whose job it is to like make money for the stock market, you have a boss who works for the state and there, there, there's, there's, there's very little sort of like structural change in how, in how the bureaucracy is run. There's no change. And like your, your individual relation to your boss does not change. He's still your boss. And that isn't what happens in Chile in, 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 in the, in the same way. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested why, 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 why this looks different here? I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, I think this is a great question. You know, and and so to to get to Allende, it is imperative that we start um, with Frey in 1964, mm -hmm. and in some senses, we can start even in 1957, which is Allende's first attempt at running for president. Um, at this time, Allende is running um, as essentially uh, the last gasp, you could say, of the Popular Front which emerged in the 1930s and into the 1940s and had successfully united a large swath of the political parties in Chile. And this is what led to that earlier moment of industrialization, largely through the sort of policy known as import substitution industrialization, in which you know, the national industries would be built, they would be protected via tariffs, price controls, and others that would stimulate local growth to produce products that would have otherwise been imported. However, by the late 1950s, things have begun to bottleneck, right? Largely in the Chilean case, because a lot of the countryside is still under control of the Latifundio, the grand estate, 
right? And which means that productivity isn't necessarily where it should be. Um, but it also means that it, the labor force that's sort of stuck on the land as well isn't available then for the development of capital goods in industry, right? And the capital goods are what you need to really jumpstart industry wholesale. What Chile does really well is that sort of intermediary phase of making um, goods for individual consumption, right? Things of things of that nature. Uh, and so what Allende does in 1957 is essentially trying to uh, first run on a platform of industrialization and, and to fix inflation, right? Uh, and he narrowly loses. He, he just barely loses the election in 1957. Hill, who wins is Alessandri wins, uh, and he will essentially adopt a very classical liberal approach. Uh, free market reforms, uh, repression of labor in some senses, freezing of any sort of gains of the labor movement, etc. This ultimately does not work, right? And so in 1964, you know, shocker, you have calls then for a more revolutionary approach. Well, also what's happening in 1964, uh, right, is we're now in the wake of the Cuban Revolution, which has taken place, which has uh, put the Americas as a hemispheric designation on notice that now it is possible to have uh, sort of a, a revolution via insurrection, via guerrilla warfare, be successful, right? And not only be successful, but be successful in defeating the hegemon of the hemisphere, United States. And so what the United States will then do is launch the Alliance for Progress, which is essentially a way of funneling money into reformist-minded governments as a way to appease these calls for revolution, um, but prevent a sort of Marxist revolution from taking place. So in the case of Chile, the Alliance for Progress will funnel many, many uh, amounts of dollars uh, into the Frey administration. Um, and Frey wins the 1964 election handily. Now, there's a great debate to be had on whether or not the, or whether the involvement of the CIA in a sort of scare tactic and fear mongering campaign went on in the 1964 campaign. Unfortunately, we just don't have the documents yet um, for this period, like we do for the 1970s and the lead up to the coup in the 1970s. Um, you know, hopefully one day we'll have a better sense of really what went on that explains such a, a, a lopsided defeat of Allende in 1964. Um, so Frey will come to power in 1964. And actually the agrarian reform in Chile will begin under the Christian Democrats, under Frey's administration, financed in large part by the Alliance for Progress. Um, also the nationalization of copper, which will be fully nationalized under Allende in the 1970s, but it actually exists in a state of so-called negotiated nationalization under Frey, or what Frey would refer to as the Chileanization of copper, in which uh, Chile would take a very small, right, 51, you know, percent controlling uh, in the copper companies, um, but would still have large, uh, the American copper companies, Anaconda and Kennecott specifically, would still be the ones responsible for running the operations themselves. That, that, that's an interesting, uh, I guess, weird historical thing. Because I know, okay, so like the, the, there, the, there have been a lot of times where the CIA has supported land reform, which is very weird. Like they do it in uh, Japan, for example, and you know it, it's seen as seen as one of these things. It's like, okay, well, we have to do land reform in order to like stop an stop an actual revolution from happening. So we'll do a sort of capitalist version of it. It's interesting to me that Chile does it because I feel like that that's not something that happens in most of the other Latin American states where the CIA gets involved. 
Um, yeah, well, it's also, I mean, the, the Alliance for Progress is official government policy. Um, you know, Kennedy will be the one that starts the alliance, uh, and then it will continue into the LBJ administration following Kennedy's assassination. Um, and so that is, um, and, and you're right that regionally, the Alliance for Progress is largely a failure. There are, however, a few successes, and Chile was at the time held up as one of the successes and has somewhat been borne out as one of the successes insofar as it is what initiates the agrarian reform in Chile. So, so I guess, so, okay, so what you're saying is that there are, there, there's like, there's, there's a specific group of parties at the U.S. backs at this period who are trying to do this sort of, who are, who are trying to do some kind of reform, um, like who, who are trying to do the sort of like the, the class collaboration reform to save off revolution thing. And then, I guess the like later policy becomes just do the do counterinsurgency on behalf of the landowners. Yeah, I mean the the way the Frey, you know, as the Frey administration continues, it becomes clear that his sort of reformist approaches is simply not working. Um, one, it's just not working on a macroeconomic level. Right, mm-hmm. inflation is still happening, which has sort of been the you know enemy number one of the Chilean economy for most of the 20th century, right? Most of the 20th century in Chile is um, presidential administrations and economic economists, economic advisors are all struggling to understand how to control inflation. Um, And, you know, Frey thinks that they can figure it out via these sort of reforms, via the agrarian reform, via the sort of Chileanization of the great mining wealth of the country. Uh, In terms of factory or industry level, they essentially propose this idea of sort of workers' enterprises that is somewhat modeled off the Yugoslavian model, hmm. uh, which is a much more communitarian um, approach, right? As you were saying earlier, you know, the, the boss is still there. Workers do have a stake in control of the enterprise, um, but private property still exists, right? So the I boss guess like, is still the boss. Like with that, like how, to what extent is that, like, uh, if, if, if you have this on a scale of like, on the one hand, on like the the extreme end, you have there's like nothing, or maybe workers can own a share of a company. And on the other end is like, I don't know, like a like a 1930s, like a, like a 1937 like anarchist commune in Spain. Like how 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 much control do they actually like? I don't know. Like is 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 this closer to something like the sort of like German co determination system? Like how close to like Yugoslavia is this? Sorry, I'm trying to get a sense of like, yeah, because this is interesting. A lot of this. No, this is fascinating. In fact, one of my sort of dream projects or sort of dream archives to get into would ultimately be the Yugoslavian archives or former Yugoslavian archives, because there is a lot of collaboration taking place between the Yugoslavian left and Chileans at this time. Mm. Um, The problem is, is that a lot of this never really gets off the ground in practice. It is a lot of sort of things that exist on paper, reforms that are proposed, but reforms that never really get implemented, which then has the effect of heightening expectations, but not delivering on the goods, which pushes people further to the left, right, and pushes them to demand a more radical solution, which they find in the 1970 campaign of Salvador Allende, right? And this is what really gets us to to Allende's victory, which is the sort of failures of the Frey administration to achieve the sort of revolution in liberty that he promises. Also, the near the end of uh, the Frey administration, there's a massacre that takes place in the south of Chile in Puerto Montt um, that really um, 
solidifies, or if you will, sort of the final push um, or loss of legitimacy for the Frey administration, as well as uh, pushing the sort of more popular classes to um, be opposed to the Frey administration, be opposed to sort of the, the Christian democratic uh, message of reformism and decides to sort of give revolution a chance. Uh, and it's into that moment that Salvador Allende uh, reforms um, the coalition that, he, you know, the original coalition that he runs on was, was referred to as the FRAP. Um, he forms a sort of new coalition in the lead up to the 1970 election, which would be the Popular Unity Coalition. Uh, and it's a coalition of leftist parties, uh, primarily the socialists of which Allende is a member and the communists. Uh, and here it's important to remember in the Chilean case that the socialists are actually to the left of the communists. Um, the communists are a much more um, reserved approach to revolution. And, and by which I mean, they're very much um, going to sort of have the, you know, they're, they're holding the party line right there, beholden to the common turn, right? But they are also very much in line with the IEM days with Allende's view of legislating socialism. That's, I guess, another interesting aspect of this, because like, that's something I, I think also doesn't get discussed very much, which is this period where like a lot of the, like that, that was the, the, the party discipline being imposed from Moscow for like a lot of this period, like is explicitly telling them not to, like explicitly saying, don't do a revolution, like hold and stabilize the situation. Um, Is, is that the case with like, so, so I, I, so I, I okay. This is this is again going back to me knowing Italy better than I know um, Chile. Is is that is that something like how how long has that been policy from? Is is that like an old is that old popular front like stuff from them or is is this is it, have has it like because I know like like U.S. policy too. Like so it's just like the Moscow line flips back and forth somewhat randomly depending on like what is going yeah, on. So you're, you're totally right. It flips a lot, especially in that, that 1930 period. And, and into the, you know, once they establish the idea of the popular front, that sort of does become the line. The big change is takes place in 1957. Um, there is a meeting of the common turn in 1957. And that's when the idea of individual national roads to socialism becomes the official mm. party line of the common turn. And that is what then authorizes communist parties across the world to seek their own routes to socialism, right? So it no longer has to be a Leninist insurrectional model. It no longer has to be a Cuban revolutionary model. Um, it can be its own. So that when Allende proposes this pluralist way of reaching socialism, that's what the communists will uh, link to. Um, and, and really, that's what they'll hitch their wagon to. And we'll, we'll tow that line throughout the three years, throughout the thousand days of the Allende government, um, which will then ultimately put them into conflict with the left wing of the Socialist Party, mm -hmm. uh, which is pushing for a much more radical um, a radical shift. And that's really the sort of context that the Cordones emerge out of in 1972 is this sort of growing factionalism, growing sectarianism within the ruling coalition of the popular unity. Yeah, I, and I, I guess this this is already going a lot of or some of the way to explaining why this looks different than a lot of the other sort of like or a lot of the other sort of socialist coalition governments you see around the world. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, partially also just yeah, the the influence of Yugoslavia is fascinating to me 
because I mean, well, because that that explains that explains so much, right? Like that that explains why there's this sort of democratic component to it, even in even in the sort of reformist periods, and it explains why the expectation is that and not the sort of like even not even like like Soviet style nationalization absolutely does not look like that. Yeah, so you're you're right that you know that these these multifaceted, multi-layer influences globally as well as locally within Chile as well as regionally um, produce something that is the first time. That um, so, for example, Allende's victory in 1970 is the first time that an openly Marxist candidate will be elected president of a nation, uh, elected democratically in a free and fair election that is not contested um, or anything like that. Now that said, he wins by plurality. He only wins by about in in the 30 percent range. Um, now historically in Chile. A plurality victory is not a problem because you remand it to the Congress and the Congress typically will just rubber stamp the victory. Allende, however, you know, there's a lot of apprehension about what he means for the country, what he means for the sort of landed elites, what he means for the sort of oligarchs that control the grand monopolies in Chile. Uh, And so there is a lot of tension well, this is also then where the actions of the CIA backfire. Um, so the work of the National Security Archive uh, has done great work for uncovering uh, the sort of two-track plan that Nixon and Kissinger have for subverting the election of Allende and then ultimately preventing him from assuming power. And part of those tracks was to sort of foment some sort of crisis uh, and so the crisis that they attempt to foment involves General Rene Schneider, and it is uh, the attempt is that they're going to kidnap him uh, and hold him hostage um, and use that as a way to prevent Allende from coming to power. Well, the problem is, is that that goes horribly wrong. The people that are carrying out the kidnapping are clearly unprepared uh, for what happens. Um, things go haywire and Schneider is assassinated. He's shot um, accidentally and later dies. Uh, and the problem then becomes, you know, the nation is horrified. The Chilean nation is horrified at this, um, took place. And as a result, then, um, ranks are closed around Allende, uh, and it is decided that they will approve his, um, candidacy, his election, and that he will be affirmed as the president. Um, and, you know, also what's happening in the background during the election and during the lead up to that vote is that the Popular Unity Coalition has its program, you know, what we would think of as a campaign um, sort of platform. Um, but part of the platform in the Popular Unity's case was what they referred to as the sort of basic agreement between the coalition and the, both the people of Chile, but also the political system, which in this basic agreement is sort of what we've been discussing this whole time, which is that. Allende would not change fundamentally the political system, right? Any sort of nationalizations, any sort of economic restructuring that they would achieve or that they would um, try to achieve in Chile would be taken, would take place, would be used or won through the halls of Congress, right? Everything would be legislated. Everything would still be remain um, the sort of Chilean uh, government as normal, right? This is where you get Allende's famous phrase that the revolution is going to be with empanadas and vino tinto, right? With meat pies and red wine, um, which means, you know, it's essentially not going to be a revolution of deprivation, right? It's not going to be a revolution that fundamentally changes the structures of everyday life in Chile. 
This has been Naked Happened Here. Join us tomorrow for part two of this interview, where we walk through the Chilean Revolution, the Cordones, and their lasting impact on Chilean society. If you want to find more of Nicholas's work, he has an article coming out in the next week or so in the Made by History section of the Washington Post connecting the revolutionary period and the broader struggle for a dignified life to the modern inclusion of social rights in the proposed new post-uprising Chilean constitution. You can find more of us at Happened Here Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and we have two new podcasts coming out. The first is Ghost Church, hosted by the inimitable Jamie Loftus. It's a, it's a deep look at the historical and contemporary practice of spiritualism and mediums who talk to ghosts. It is wonderful. Jamie is one of the best podcasters to ever do it, and the first episode is out right now. You can find Ghost Church wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Second, on May Day, which is which is this Sunday, May 1st, the first episode of the great Margaret Kiljoy's new podcast, Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, is dropping. It's about, well, what the title says. It's the coolest revolutionaries, desperados, and ordinary people in the right place and right time doing extremely cool stuff. And it's happening every Monday and Wednesday from here on out. So go give it a listen when it drops on May Day. It is going to be great. And yeah, it is, it, is, it is a great time to be podcasting. There are... There are many podcasts, so go listen to them now after you're done with this one. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a show that is once again today about the Chilean Revolution. Um, here's part two of my interview with Nicholas Scott. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess the next thing we should look at is like how how this yeah, and what happens in its next, opening right? phase. Yeah, and it's yeah, exactly well, well you know, the essentially by the end of Allende's first year, things are looking very promising. So a few victories, more than a few victories, but a few key victories take place in, in his first year in office in 1971. He submits his plan for the nationalization of the nation's mineral wealth, which is voted unanimously in Congress, uh, which speaks to the level of broad support for Chile having its own national sovereignty over its own resources, right? And this also then connects with sort of the theme that we've been developing this whole time, which is the sort of trends and regional and global uh, similarities between Chile and elsewhere, right? A lot of the third world movement, a lot of countries in the so-called third world at that time are looking to nationalization as the way to extricate themselves from what they viewed as being in a relationship of dependency to circuits of global capitalism, right? You have this whole idea of dependency theory that comes out of Latin America in specific. Um, and the solution then is seen to be able to control one's own natural resources uh, and, and use that wealth to develop its own national industry, right? This would overcome those sort of bottlenecks in the import substitution model, um, as well as allowing for a more redistributive um, structure of wealth and or land within the individual countries themselves. So he gets his mineral wealth um, nationalization passed. Uh, the Popular Unity Coalition also wins a series of off-year or by-elections at the local level um, and wins them so successfully that they will eschew a uh, alliance with the Christian Democrats who are not part of the coalition, the Popular Union Coalition, but they are also at this time not part of the opposition, which is largely controlled by the Nationalist Party. They're sort of in, somewhere in the middle, but they're also in a point in the middle in which they control a large share of the Congress as well as the courts themselves. So they will not, so the Popular Union Coalition is sort of buoyed by the, what it sees as the success at the ballot box, and it sees its success as getting its plans passed. Uh, and so they will eschew an alliance with the Christian Democrats. And then the sort of other main thing that takes place in 1971 is that Allende is able to affect using uh, macroeconomic policies that were functionally Keynesianism, right? Um, and his economic minister, Pedro Vuskovic, um, will essentially allow for a redistribution of wealth uh, in which uh, workers receive sort of um, what they could what we can consider bonuses, right? But sort of automatic increases um, that were affected from the top down in wages across. Uh, and the historian Peter Wynn, uh, who published the sort of landmark study uh, that really dominated the field 
of the history and the historiography of the popular unity years. He published a book called Weavers of Revolution that looks at the Yarrow textile mill, which was the first mill that Allende nationalizes um, in 1971. And what Wynne found during his research is that, you know, Allende's policies in 1971 allowed a majority of Chileans to purchase bedsheets for the first time in many of their lives. Bedsheets were not something that the majority of Chileans used, despite the fact that a majority of Chileans worked in the textile industry, right? The textile industry was one of the most developed industries in Chile at this moment. And so all of these things sort of come together. And by the end of 1971, signs are looking good. However, by the time sort of 1972 dawns, and as we're getting into 1972, cracks are beginning to appear. There's another series of by-elections in which the Popular Unity Coalition does not win, the Christian Democrats win. Uh, the election for the rector of the University of Chile is a shock defeat uh, for the Popular Unity Coalition. The Christian Democrat wins that. Um, as well as in 1972, there is for the first time in the nation's history, the um, Central Workers Federation of Labor, the CUT, has for the first time its own um, open elections for its leadership. It was the first time the rank and file could elect the leadership of the National Labor Confederation. And the communists win the largest majority and the socialists come in second. But just below the socialists and at the percentage level, it was functionally the same were the Christian Democrats. So much so that basically a quarter, the, the Popular Unity Coalition sees that a quarter of the working class of Chile identifies as a Christian Democrat. Meanwhile, economically, things are beginning to stall out. Uh, inflation is beginning to creep back up. Um, production is not necessarily at the levels that um, the government would want it to be at, right? So the idea of winning the battle of production begins becomes the sort of watchword or rallying cry in 1972. Uh, and if the successes of 1971 had somewhat papered over the sectarian differences that we were discussing earlier between, say, the communists and the socialists, by 1972, those sectarian differences are really spilling out into public view. So in mid-1972, you have the uh, Communist Party, um, member of the Communist Party is also a member of the Allende government, or Orlando Mias, pins an editorial in which he essentially calls for the party, for the coalition to sort of close ranks, to consolidate its gains, to reach out to the Christian Democrats, to make an alliance, and use that sort of consolidated alliance as the way to move forward on in the revolutionary path. The socialists, however, specifically the left wing of the Socialist Party, which was sort of identified with Carlos Altimirano at the time, takes the opposite approach and says that, no, the solution isn't to consolidate to advance. Uh, the solution is to advance and consolidate by advancing. In other words, we shouldn't try to make an alliance with the Christian Democrats, because in their view, the Christian Democrats were just bourgeois, right? Yeah. That we should essentially align ourselves with the popular classes, with the rural laborers that are leading charge of the agrarian reform that's picking up speed rapidly in the countryside at this time, right? Se land seizures are taking place much more rapidly now. Uh, we should also place our alliances with the popular working classes, which at that moment, at the moment that this polemic is playing out in the press 
of Chile is the very same moment that you have the first cordon industrial emerge in Cerritos Maipú. Uh, and it's into that sort of fractured moment that you have workers from a couple of plants that just happened to meet serendipitously on the steps of the labor ministry. One day in um, about May of 1972, they had both been on strike and had both been demanding their incorporation into what was referred to as the social property area, which this was Allende's vision for creating a socialist economy. And this was a plan that he had submitted to the Congress to restructure the Chilean economy into three parts. They would have a social property area that would be owned and operated by the state. You'd have a mixed property area that would be a sort of mixture 50-50 between the state and private industry. And you'd have a private property area, which would just be business as usual, private enterprise. Um, ultimately, that plan had been stalled out because of opposition from the Christian Democrats uh, that vetoed it and submitted their own alternative strategy, which then Allende vetoed became a constitutional crisis that got remanded to the constitutional tribunal in Chile, which ultimately it languished there through the end of the Allende government through 1973 during the coup has never really resolved. Nevertheless, workers saw the ability to be in put into the social property area as the solution to what they perceived as a revolutionary socialism, right? To be in a socialized economy. And I mentioned earlier, Peter Wynn's work on the Yarrow textile mill. That's exactly what the workers at Yarrow did. They decided to do. Now that is in opposition to Allende and the Popular Unity's plan, which was to put these sort of grand monopolies in the social property area, not necessarily smaller industries such as such as the Yarrow textile mill in particular. Um, there were other perhaps textile companies that had been slated for incorporation. But the problem is, is that the workers successfully petitioned um, and pressured Allende and won their incorporation. And that unleashed what Wynn would refer to as a revolution from below. And that's what allowed the workers who seized the labor ministry that day in 1972 to demand their incorporation into the social property area. Because there was a, a law on the books in Chile that stated that if there was an unresolved labor conflict in a factory, that the state could intervene and essentially make state control of that factory, which would be the first step to them being incorporated into the social property area. And so it's out of that happenstance meeting on the doors to the labor ministry when they seize it and take it over, shut it down, um, that then the workers of this industrial sector on the west of uh, Santiago begin meeting and they begin collaborating and they begin organizing themselves territorially. And I guess this is a good moment to apologize to our listeners that never really gave a good definition as to what a cordon industrial was in practice. Essentially, the, the sort of wager of this organization was that you could organize yourself territorially rather than by trade or industry, right? Which would be the traditional way that a union would be structured. Um, you know, metal workers organize with metal workers, glass workers organize with glass workers, textile, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and never the twain shall meet in practice, right? It's all through bureaucratic structures, labor leaders, et cetera. As I mentioned, it wasn't until 1972 that the you know rank and file is ever able to vote themselves for their own national leadership. And so the idea of these workers is that they're going to create their sort of new form of organization. And after you know deciding to do it, they seize the territory of Sirios Maipu 
they shut down traffic. And this road that they seize is one of the main roads into the city of Santiago from the west, which means that the government had to respond immediately. As one uh, worker, uh, not worker, one government official put it at the time, the workers were in the streets. We had to respond, right? You're, you're a, a government that claims to represent the working class. Uh, you're a government that it claims to be putting yourself on the road to socialism. And the workers have now cut off transportation into the city um, and are demanding sort of you to fulfill your promise. And so they had to respond. Um, ultimately, some of the workers that were striking at the time, specifically from the Perlac company, which was a canning company, uh, they did win the incorporation into the social property area. Um, and however, other workers um, from other factories in the area did not win their incorporation, which then produced uh, a march into the city of Santiago in late June. And it also produced a platform of struggle by what was referred to as the Workers' Command of Cerrillos Maipú. Uh, and that's really the first document we have um, that shows that there is this new structure that is demanding that the government fulfill its promise, live up to its basic program. Um, now, following that moment, however, there's sort of a period of demobilization that takes place in sort of mid-1972. And it's really not until October 1972 that you have the flourishing of this new form of organization, the Cordon Industrial, across the city of Santiago. And the reason that it takes place in October of 1972 is because that's the moment that the opposition launches its first concerted effort to try and topple the Allende government. Uh, it's what's referred to as the bosses strike. And essentially what happens is there's a, a localized strike of truckers in the far south of Chile. And the sort of business elites of the country are successful in transforming what is a very localized strike in the far south into a global lockout on the part of business owners, right? So they'll shutter factories, they'll shutter distribution centers of foodstuffs, they'll completely shut down transportation networks in the city of Santiago and other cities across the country. Um, so you can understand why they would call it the bosses strike. Um, and this is the moment then that you have workers in these industrial zones that we start, began our conversation with using this model that emerged in the Southwest of, of Santiago as this new model to uh, seize their factories that they've been locked out of, to reorganize the production of their factories and to ensure distribution uh, you know, takes place of basic goods and services for local residents in their community. It's really what allows the Allende government to weather the storm of the October strike and uh, the October crisis as it will also be known. Um, Ultimately, you know, that will reach a truce in November. That includes a cabinet shakeup, also includes integrating the military into the cabinet, um, as well as Allende was able to deploy the military to sort of keep the peace in some senses. So there is a historiographical debate to be had between, you know, how much of it was the workers and the cordones saving the country and saving the government, and how much of it was the military remaining loyal to the government that allows them to sort of reach what's referred to as the truce of November. So I guess I, I want to back up for a second and talk about what does the internal organization of the Cordones actually look like? Like, are we talking about councils? Is this mass assemblies? Um, how, how, how does this actually work on a sort of like day-to-day -day basis? It's a great question. And this is actually the question that has sort of uh, dominated a lot of the scholarship on the Cordones. Um, Frank Goodishud, who is sort of the leading scholar of the Cordones, um, essentially 
used Marx's distinction of a class in itself and a class for itself to sort of unravel this question. So for for Gurdjieff, the the cordon in itself is the sort of territory, right, that we began our conversation with. And then the cordon for itself is essentially the workers' council that is the governing body of the cordon itself, which was uh, composed of already unionized workers, right? So it already is a, a tier of working class above, say, just your general worker that worked on the factory floor. So it's already a unionized worker and someone that occupies a power or a position of authority within the union, i.e. already a, or on the directorate or president, vice president, treasurer, or secretary. So that main council is are elected within the sort of general assembly of the cordon itself. Below, you have then different commissions, right? You have a sort of propaganda press commission. You have a cultural commission. You have a sports commission. You have a security commission, right? Because at this time, you had far-right shock troops that would uh, spark street battles and that would harass workers. They would also attack factories that had been seized. So they had um, security commission, frontline defense commission. You also had distribution commissions. Uh, and then you had other commissions that would essentially seek to coordinate all of this um, that exists. So you had a sort of coordinating board just below the sort of general council. And then that's what was the mediation point between that sort of governing council and your different commissions. How, how are the people who are like, who are on these commissions selected? Are they like, are they elected or is it just like whoever wants to be on this uh, thing? So it's a mix of both, right? So you, your sort of main council itself is elected via a general assembly. Um, in terms of the commissions, the smaller commissions, we sadly don't have great documentary evidence that you know lays out the process for that. So our best guess or our best understanding would be a mix of sort of volunteerism as well as some sort of um, within the commission itself, some form of election, excuse me, that would take place to sort of a, a point ahead of that commission that would then coordinate with the general council itself. Um, you know, really what this, you know, what this sort of cuts to the heart of um, is that the history of the Cordones is a very effervescent history. Um, it's really easy to see the Cordones in action, right, when they're doing things like seizing control of their territory and erecting barricades. But on that day-to-day -day level, it's a relatively opaque sort of structure. It's really hard for us as historians to get a view into that. You know, one reason the Goodishud is able to, uh, to you know, unpack as much as he has and uncover as much as he has is because he conducted a series of oral history interviews um, with many of the surviving workers. Um, and that's really one of the foundational source bases we have. Uh, he published this in a book in which he published the full transcript of his interviews. So we don't, it's not just like an interpretive essay, it's the full transcript. Um, and so that's that in combination with some of these uh, Cordones had local presses that we have existing um, documentary evidence from that uh, sort of would give, you know, your standard diagram of council, commission, 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 lines connecting them and things like that. Um, but one of the other few documents that we have, surviving documents we have, is what's referred to as the Manifesto of Cordon Vacuna Macena. And this is the document that my research really is at the heart of my research. Um, because while Vacuna Macena is recognized as sort of one of the most dynamic and strongest of the Cordones behind the original Inserios Maipu, we really don't have a lot. We don't know a lot about what was going on 
in there. In fact, my research was born out of a conversation the first time I was in Chile conducting research for my master's at Tufts um, with Godishud himself, who told me that like we really don't know a lot about what was going on day to day in Fukuna Makena. It'd be really great if we could somehow find a way to do that. Uh, and you know, that kind of stuck with me. That really wasn't my concern at the time. My concern at the time was trying to understand how the Cordones had shifted from their emergence to the coup itself, because I, what I was seeing in a lot of the literature was that people were using sources from late 1973, once the Cordones are established and really showing up in press, right? They're showing up in the archive a lot more by 1973. Yeah. And they're using documents from 1973 to describe their sort of founding in 1972. And the historian in me was kind of like, Mm, you know, <laughs> yeah, things change. things change, right? And, and ch- things change both over time and space. And so my original concern was, you know, what made the sort of changes from the Western side of the city to the Eastern side of the city. But then when I got to UVA and began my doctoral work, I really wanted to zero in on Fukuna Makena. And really I was, you know, that, that conversation with Frank was really ringing in my head. And so I, you know, I kind of, at UVA, I had to do another master's essay as part of the program there, despite having, you know, already done a, a master's <laughs> thesis when I was at Tufts. Um, oh no, double <laughs> exactly. thesis curse. <laughs> exactly the thesis curse. But you know, it what it did, what it allowed me to do was to, uh, you know, kind of play with the sources in ways that I may not have had the ability to do otherwise, right? Uh, and so I really sat with this manifesto for a long period of time and really did a close reading of this document, which, you know, a lot of times this document has shown up in previous studies. It's shown up as a, this is a document that emerges during the October crisis. It's the document we know we have from this one cordon. Here it is, right? But what I uncovered was that the document itself, the document that is headed as the manifesto is actually a reworked version of a document that had circulated previously during the October crisis hmm. that was produced by the revolutionary left uh, movement, the Mir, the far left uh, party in yeah, Chile. Aren't they? Aren't they? Uh, aren't they like Guevarists? They are. They very much are. Uh, this is the, the very far left um, party that is calling for a more insurrectionary model. Um, it's also calling for a worker peasant alliance, right? So it is this very much more traditional um, socialist revolutionary uh, in that sense compared to the sort of Allendeist. Um, vision of socialism that that is um, being handed down from above, right? And so during the October crisis, there's this document that circulates by the opposition that's running the crisis that is essentially the um, petition, the pliego in in Spanish would be the word, but essentially the petition of of Chile. Um, And the MIR takes issue with the fact that the bosses issued a petition in the name of Chile. Yep. And so they issue a counter document that is the people's uh, petition, the Pliego del Pueblo. Uh, and it's a very long document. It's a very, um, it reads as a essentially a manifesto for a, a new revolution to take place, right? Like how to transform the present crisis into a revolutionary breakthrough. And as you're saying, a Guevarist model. In the tail end of the October crisis, as Cordon Vukuna Makena is consolidating itself, right? It, it itself forms after a factory seizure at Alec Metal um, 
which then unites these sort of two nodes that existed in the territory at the north end and the south end into one sort of communication and solidarity network that will then become known as the Cordon, that has its first general assembly in which it takes this document from the mirror and begins to rework it. And that's then what becomes the manifesto of Cordon Vacuna Macena. And so in my research and in my master's uh, essay at at the University of Virginia, what I did was I, you know, I really compared these two documents and looked for where the difference is. You know, what's showing up here that's not showing up in the Mears document. In other words, what glimpses can we get of the local culture of Akuna Makena itself? Um, and one of the key differences that I find is there's an entire section that begins the manifesto that was the crime of the bosses, the crimes of the bosses. And that exists in the Mears document as well. But the crimes that are articulated are bear slight differences, but the in the manifesto itself, the final crime that is articulated is that uh, the manifesto reads that it's a crime that the basic few elite in Chile continue to use the country's wealth to support their privileges without giving a dignified life to a majority of Chileans. And this doesn't appear anywhere in the Mears document. And it was something about this phrase of a dignified life that really just like cued my analytical senses that sort of raised the flags for me. And this is what then led me down the road that I'm on now, which is the road of looking at things like the church and the Poblador movement. Because the idea of dignity and the idea of a dignified life is a key discourse that's circulating in the church's pastoralism, right? Coming out, as we were speaking about earlier, the discourse of dignity is really uh, present in, in the church's outreach efforts, but it's also present in this Poblador movement for housing. The idea of a dignified house as the end goal of their struggle is something that is, you know, rings out in the documents that we have access to and in the oral histories that we have. And so that really you know, made me think like, what is it then about Vakuna Makena that is allowing this to appear here? And, you know, what can we then learn using this as our, you know, starting point and going out where? And so that's when I decided to sort of take the story back all the way to 1957 and look at things like the church, look at things like the Poblador movement, but then also extend the story past the 1973 period, which is when the coup takes place, which is, you know, in the historiography seen as this, you know, hard line, this, this break in, in Chilean history, that there's a before September 11th, 1973, and there's an after September 11th, 1973. And very few studies cross that line, especially studies with regards to the labor movement. The specifically the, the dignity thing is, is, is really, really interesting to me too, because so I, I did an interview like, oh God, like a month ago. Sort of have lost track of time, but I, I did an interview with with an with an Amazon organizer, and one of the things that, that was one of the things that was like one of the things that he brought up is that one of the things that like we are fighting for is dignity, and and uh, yeah, and that, that that's something specifically I've been thinking about more because I, like I, I think I, we talked about this a bit in in the interview itself, but like like dignity as a demand is a thing that you that you see all of the time in like in 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 you know if 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 you are talking to a bunch of people 
like on the street in the middle of a movement, you will hear people talk about dignity. I mean, I, th- I think if if I'm remembering this correctly, this is what this was one of the this is one of the big thing. This is one of the big demands in like the 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 the, the modern uh, Chilean protest movements. Like that was one of their huge sort of focus. Yes. But it's, but it's also something like I I have never like at any I don't think I've ever seen like a communist party say the word dignity. Like like it, 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 I think it happens. I don't know. Every once in a while, like maybe you see it if if you get a document that's that's not produced by the sort of ideological engines, but is produced by like just a bunch of workers in a factory. But yeah, yeah, that that that's fascinating to me because like yeah, because that it I don't know. It's it's it seems like the struggle for dignity. Both it, yeah, like has this thing as like a very specific discourse from the church, but is also something that shows up in a lot of movements where you're not dealing with the kind of like ideological rigidity that you get from, I mean, you know, like the mirror, not the mirror, mirror is a like that, that, you know, like that, that's, that's a very like, like this is a party. It has a line. It has a very sort of like, right, it's a organization. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, it's fascinating to me that, that, yeah, that, that you, you can see these differences where even when, they have influence the thing that gets added is dignity yeah i mean there is you know and i think that perhaps what has um pushed studies of leftism socialism and labor movement away from the idea of dignity as an analytic object is there is tension here right dignity is a highly individualized concept yeah but the solution for a dignified life for all Chileans as per this document were collective structural changes. And so there's this tension between a collective solution and an individual gain, right? And so I think that that both um, explains why this hasn't necessarily been a focus of a lot of studies um, before, but it also, you know, it gets to the historiography itself, which was, you know, a large product of the history here. And so things like the Christian Democrats and things like the church were seen as the enemy of the popular unity coalition, given the way that the, you know, the coup takes place and and things like that. And so anything that maybe had a whiff of Christian democracy or Christianity or things like that was seen as, as antithetical or incompatible with the study of, of the left. It also gets to the tension that you were doing a really great job of, of sort of unpacking, which is this tension between the national leadership of these parties and the national union leadership, and then everyday workers on the ground, right? And, you know, that's, I think, really where the strength, and this was really the argument that I advanced in my master's thesis at UVA, is that one of the central contradictions of the Allende period is there were competing ideas of socialism. Yep. So from the top down and from Allende's view, socialism was the traditional Soviet Union-esque approach insofar as it was national economic planning, party hierarchies, things of that nature, right? Discipline at the base and upward and upward planning from the top down. But what I think the manifesto and the history of Vicuna Makina helps us understand is that for everyday individuals, that their idea of socialism didn't have anything to do with state economic planning. It didn't have anything to do with expertise and technocrats and things of that nature. It had to do with the idea that like, I need sheets for my bed. I need food for my child. 
I need the ability to, you know, have enough sleep to be able to get up and go to the factory the next day, right? I need to be able to live a dignified life to be able to then, you know, carry out my work, my obligation as a worker in the historical movement of socialism. And so I think that this is really what um, this tension is then what allows for the sort of destabilization to take place um, as the opposition consolidates and, and ultimately destabilizes the Allende government in 1973. Yeah, and I think th- this is a tension that like – I mean I, th- I think there's there's different versions of it too that you see sort of across history. Like one of the ways that it manifests is – this battle between the people who think socialism is about like is 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 national like state national incorporation the people who think socialism is about like direct control at the point of production by the people who are doing the work but but i think also yeah the 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 question of dignity is it's like it, it's this it's like dignity is this expression that's like maximally bad for um like if if you're like you know if, if you're like a you're 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 a material you're like a you know you're a historical materialist theoretician right it's it, it's it's the worst possible slogan because on the one hand it's like it's not materialist right like what is dignity there's no dignity has no class relation like what is that you know and it's 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 simultaneously like it's not materialist enough it's too reformist because like oh well you could give people dignity by just buying them off or like increasing wages or you could have a class compromise and that can give you dignity but then simultaneously it's this thing that's too radical because the problem with dignity also is it like yeah i don't know like there, there's there's no guarantee that you're going to get dignity if like your factory is controlled by the state like exactly and, and, yeah and this is why like you see almost identical right, like the revolts. state is a boss just by yeah. a different name yeah and and yeah and it's like it's, it's why you see like the, the uprisings that happen um i mean really starting in 1957 in hungary but yeah you see, this is why like the, their uprising in czechoslovakia looks almost identical to like the uprising that happens in france it's because they're, they're both like they're, there's you, you know you're you're like you the factory worker in a factory in Czechoslovakia and you the factory worker in the factory in France are dealing with essentially the same thing and so it's it's this kind of like i don't know it's, it seems like it's 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 this perfect sort of like cipher for all of these kind of political differences that 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 manifest this 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 really old tension in what the workers movement is going to be that's been being fought out since the 1830s and right. that yeah but i think that like if we as scholars and if we as intellectuals are really serious about when we say that we're going to study things from below then i think that we have to take the workers at their word yeah right and so like for example i presented a version of my of my master's thesis at a i studied was it a program in bologna for a summer um, and so I was presenting this and to the sort of, you know, and the Italian leftists in the room um, really came, you know, came down on this question of it sounds like what they're describing isn't socialism because they're much more interested in distribution and not interested in the point of production, which isn't socialist. And, you know, and all I could say and all I could respond to this is like, that's what my subjects are using in the archive. And for me, it's far more productive to look for those slippages and look for those spaces in the archive when they are saying something that may be different than what we understand it to be. And that's a lot more productive avenue for analysis. And that to me is really how we fulfill this obligation to study things from below is we have to actually take them at their word and understand and try to understand what that actually meant for them 
right? And what that meant on an everyday basis. And, and I, I think that there's a, there's a sort of like practical, like organizational, like like you know, if 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 you today want to do something like this, like I, I think I think there's there's an imperative there too, which is that like you actually do have to take seriously what people think and how that's different from the way that like you, the organizer are thinking about this, because those are things that don't overlap. And a lot of times that like, you know, and, and it's, it's not enough to just be like, well, these people want dignity. What they actually want is socialism or like what they actually want is the abolition of the class system. It's like, you have to like believe them when they say that they want something. And you know, and, and and when you don't do that, and when you get these sort of disjuncts between, like when you get these disjuncts between the, the the sort of the sort of party bureaucracy on the top and what like people in the streets who are seizing factories want, like yeah, I think like things start to sort of come apart. Exactly, and I you know I think that um, that if we don't you know depart from the perspective of staying true to what the archive gives us, then there's only a risk that we're you know, every historian, every scholar is going to inject their own interpretation onto a document, right? Yeah. Um, but the best way to sort of safeguard that is to, you know, stay true to what it's saying. And that, you know, the same goes for an activist and an organizer as for an intellectual, right? Like if you don't depart from the perspective of what your constituents or what your group is saying, you know, what they're really saying, the words that they're using to describe what they're demanding, then you're only ever going to just be trying to sort of fit the, you know, the, the square peg in the round hole. Yeah. And and that can go really, really, really spectacularly wrong. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that is, you know, what then leads to, you know, in the case of the Cordonis, that will then lead to tensions that will really break out into the open in 1973 and early 1973 when the, um, Orlando Mias, the same person that starts that polemic in 1972, by this point becomes finance minister um, in the Allende administration and presents a plan to sort of devolve some of the factories that had been seized during the October crisis, right, back to their original owners. Uh, and then this creates a huge problem, a uh, huge tension between the base, between workers in these factories that had sort of sacrificed yeah. everything and put their lives, literally put their lives on the line to seize the factories in the first place. Um, and so then you have another sort of moment of mobilization of the Cordones across uh, the city of Santiago in early 1973. That's very much in opposition to the government now. Can I, can um, I ask a, a, a brief sort of framing question about this, which is that like, okay, so we, we talked about this in, in, in the interview we did with uh, some with modern Chilean activists, but like what 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 is the population of Santiago relative to like the population of the entirety of Chile at this point? Like how? That a, yeah, that is a great question that I don't actually have statistics like that I can rattle off no the top of my head. Um, but you know, I mean, there's there is uh, it is a great you know Santiago is the most populous region for sure, or so rather the most populous city, uh, and then sort of metropolitan region itself. Uh, it's very densely populated. And is it, is it now, still like a, like a, a pretty significant like population of the entire country or is it less? It is a significant population of the whole country for sure. Um, 
but there is tension in this. And then this is kind of the reason why I always try to steer somewhat away from these types of questions, because I'm sure this came up in your conversation with Chilean activists is that, you know, there is the phrase that Santiago is not Chile. Uh, and yeah. so there is a, ten- there is a tendency to rely on statistics of Santiago's population and the metropolitan region's population to say like, Oh, this is where the majority of people live. So if it happened in Santiago, then that must be true for all of Chile. Yeah, um, And that just isn't the case, right? Chile is a huge country. It may be very narrow, but it's very long north to south. Uh, and it, you know, it is very distinct across the many regions of Chile. And so I very much am on the side of those that argue that Santiago is not Chile. Um, unfortunately, in the case of the Cordones, the majority of them do exist in Santiago. Uh, that said, in Concepcion, um, you know, another Chile further to the south of Santiago, there is one of the other cities that we know for sure actually did have Cordones that were moderately successful as well. In fact, there is, and now I'm completely forgetting her name, um, but there is a historian that has published a book about the Cordones in Concepcion. That's the one of the few studies that uh, sort of tries to look at Cordones beyond Santiago itself. Yeah, so is, you know, and a, a very well-taken point um, on your, on my part here that like, you know, a lot of our discussion today has been about Santiago. And so is very much limited to. Yeah. This is a, this is a problem that you get a lot with like large urban movements. Like, I mean, so I, I run into this with Tiananmen all the time where it's like, you know, okay. So Tiananmen there's 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 the big thing in Tiananmen, but this happens in like cities all over China, and there's just nothing. There's like almost nothing that has ever sort of like been written or has gotten out of what happened everywhere else in the country. And so you get this you get this very myopic view of like what was happening that I think loses a lot of the sort of like I mean a, a lot of the diversity and a lot of the sort of the it. You, you you get a reality that is shaped by the specific experience of one place, which is not the specific experience of every other place. Right. Exactly. So like in the case of like Santiago and Cordonis, right? Like the labor working class that's making up this is factory labor, as we were saying at the sort of level of uh, consumer products. Right. But say if you had a Cordon in say Valparaiso, uh, the sort of coastal city, the port city, um, where you have a much uh, different labor force, right, uh, with dock workers, things like that, you're going to have a much different uh, formation that's going to take place. And so as much as like my initial sort of attempt to understand the differences within the geography of Santiago, um, you know, I think was important, I always have to remind myself that like it's still just this one city, yeah. um, which is very different from the experience of a vast majority of Chileans. I mean, it's definitely a moment in which, uh, you know, there is still a very large rural population for sure. And I guess like that, that brings me to, so like, yeah, in, in, in terms of sort of, okay, I guess there, there, there's two directions here. One, I guess is about what is the, like, what is the rural population doing like while this is going on? And the second one, well, I guess, I guess we can start there. 
Yeah, I mean, as we sort of mentioned earlier, there is an agrarian reform that is happening, right? And you are having uh, a labor movement that is picking up rapid steam in the countryside, right? And you are having land seizures that is that are taking place and picking up steam. Um, and so that's a lot of what's going on in the countryside is uh, both uh, an increase in land seizures uh, and increasingly militant land seizures at that, but you're also having um, an increased unionization. Right. So the labor code in Chile had a different set of regulations for rural labor than it did for urban or factory labor. Right. And so one of the things that on uh, the Allende period that we see is a sort of flourishing of organized labor in the countryside. So you are having a lot of party militants going out into the countryside, as well as uh, labor leaders locally in the countryside that are organizing rural laborers. Um, so you are having mass um, union drives. Unfortunately, and I will be the first to admit that I am largely, you know, and this is again a consequence of like being an urban historian, yeah, I am yeah. largely ignorant of the, the inner dynamics, of what is happening on in, in the countryside. Um, scholars like Florencia Mallon or Heidi Tinsman have both produced uh, outstanding works on this question um, in terms of the the relationship between land seizures and gender and indigeneity um, that is taking place in the countryside. So I guess, yeah. So, you know, okay. So we, we, we yeah, we, we can't get into too much detail on this, but I, I would, would it be broadly like accurate to say that it, it's not true that you're dealing with a situation where there's a huge sort of divide in the level of mobilization organization between the city and rural regions like that this, this isn't like a sort of like, like you're not dealing with like a like a Vendée peasant situation where you have this enormous sort of reactionary base in the countryside. Oh right, yeah. No, you definitely don't. Yeah, it's definitely not that. Um, and you know there are attempts over the course of the Allende years. You know the Mir is one of the sort of fronts that this is playing out in. Um, but even the Cordones themselves, right? So like one of the initial um, rallies and sort of mobilizations of the Sorios Maipu Cordon is for um, the jailing and imprisonment of a series of rural militants and rural laborers that um, in the area of uh, Melipilla, um, there are some uh, activists and workers that are jailed. Uh, and those, uh, the Cordon actually marches into the city of Santiago, <laughs> into the downtown part of Santiago to demand their release. Um, and this is like a, a, a disparate geography here that we're talking about. And so um, it is, you know, this is an instance in which you're trying to see these sort of links be um, both be made and strengthened uh, between uh, factory labor in cities and rural labor in the countryside. And, and I, I guess that brings me to the, the second point, which is like, okay, so the, 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 there is a right in Chile and it is not happy um, Very I, much, yeah, yeah, and and I guess I, one of the things I guess I wanted to talk about was uh, so my my impression about a lot of what is happening in 1973 has to do with the fact that Chile's like truckers movement is really right wing, and that right. that has well okay so part of that part of that is the CIA part of that is just this like a, a Part of it is the CIA's ability to keep striking truckers afloat yeah, when they're not working yeah. and on strike. Yeah. Part and of it also is a consequence from this moment in October, right, in which the national business elite and national economic elite in Chile transform that trucker strike into the boss's strike, 
right? So you do have this alliance being formed and strengthened at that moment as well, which will, as you're referring to, in 1973, there is another trucker strike that takes place that uh, is even more um, crippling in some senses than the initial one. Yeah. And then also, also as, as I will mention, literally every time, even to like, actually, I don't know if I can say that on air, but the part that I can say on air is, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, to their eternal ignominious non-glory, the AFL-CIO is also heavily involved in that, which is fun and good. And uh, yeah, AFL-CIO please stop overthrowing governments and helping neoliberalism. <laughs> it's a very, it, it's a very uh, interesting AFL CIO history uh, in relation yeah. to Chile is actually very fascinating because during the dictatorship, they will actually be on the other side and actually helping labor get back on its feet. Um, and as a key point of resistance. So they're um, in the late 1970s, organizing a boycott of Chilean products, which actually is a key point of pressure on the dictatorship to begin allowing for new, um, for a sort of new labor movement to begin emerging. Yeah, which that I, I, at some point, like, for, I don't, I don't think it can happen here. But I, I just did the podcast name. Hey, but yeah, like, I, hey. I don't think, it, I don't think it can be this time. But like, yeah, I, at at some point, I do want to take a deeper dive into sort of like what the AFL CIO is doing during this period because they are like they're all over. Like, yeah, there's a fascinating history. Yeah. Yeah, like I mean, like you know, like one, one, my 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 last AFL CIO, what are you doing thing for this episode is I, uh, so the, the, the AFL CIO has a policy where like they don't, like they don't associate with like like state union federations, and they make one exception for it, and it's the state union federation of the military dictatorship in South Korea, which is like it's like oh, good job guys, like well, well doing great here, <laughs> this is this is going great, yeah, but but. Yeah, I guess can we can we get into sort of the 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 crises that like are the, the crises that like precipitate the end of Allende? Totally. Yeah. So by this point, you know, as I mentioned, by 1971, the opposition is largely um, disarticulated. Uh, you have the National Party. You have the sort of far right organization um, that would be translated as uh, Fatherland and Freedom, Patria y Libertad. I translate it as fatherland and freedom because I think it has a better, it conjures it better. Others will translate it as fatherland and liberty. Um, but I, I'm a sucker for alliterative um, <laughs> forms. And so that's the the translation that I use. I also think it conjures more of the sort of fascistic elements, yeah. which this very yeah. much was a fascist organization. Yeah. Um, Bunch of neoliberals so they, in it too. Which, yes. No, I mean, yeah. the, the, a lot of, you know, Los <laughs> Chicago boys will um, yeah. have ties to, uh, Patria Libertad. Um, and so there have, you know, rightist shock troops that are uh, fomenting uh, conflicts in the streets um, that are also setting off bombs that are crippling the power grid, um, especially much later in 1973. Um, but following that moment in 1971, when the popular unity government eschews the alliance with the Christian Democrats, the Christian Demo that pushes the Christian Democrats to begin forming an alliance with the National Party. And what happens then is that the left wing of the Christian Democrats splits from that party to form its own party of left Christians. <laughs> but then the consequence of that is that that means that the, the more rightist elements of the Christian Democrat Party can consolidate their power yeah. and strengthen their ties with the national power. So that by you know late 1972, 
and very much by the March 1973 elections, which were sort of the key electoral moment that everyone was looking to um, at this moment, um, you have a you have a solid alliance of the right. Um, now the Allende coalition will win the March 1973 elections, um, and that is really the moment that scholars agree that the the switch is sort of flipped for the opposition, and that they realize that they can no longer defeat the Popular Unity Coalition at the ballot box, and that they now need to use extra constitutional means, right? And so they begin developing, sort of deploying the full force of those means. Um, and here is a point where the role of gender is very important, because a lot of what the right will do will be to mobilize the power of the, the power and symbol of women protesting um, as a way to delegitimate the Allende government and to delegitimate key figures uh, in the Allende administration. So earlier, there is a key um, protest that happens, which is the March of Angry Pots. Um, and this is a you know a very traditional form of protest in Latin America, which uh, the Casa Lazo, right, the sort of banging of pots and pans in protest. Um, but the right organizes it to be largely carried out by women as a way to protest what is seen as a um, you know a lack of supply of basic uh, food necessities for um, families in Chile, which you know we now know is a result of black market speculation and hoarding on a lot of the part of the sort of distribution centers controlled by the right. Nevertheless, um, they essentially use this symbol of um, women heads of households uh, marching uh, in the streets in opposition to Allende. So that's one thing that happens. Later in 1973, they will sort of reuse this tactic and deploy women to protest in front of um, the houses of key military figures um, that are in the cabinet of Allende at this point. Uh, this will then force the resignation of some of these figures from the Allende cabinet. And then one of the key figures that is then replaced in the cabinet is none other than Augusto Pinochet, who will be welcomed into the cabinet and specifically will be welcomed into the cabinet because he is seen as a strict constitutionalist in the Chilean military uh, and is not seen as any sort of threat to what is going on. Meanwhile, in late June of 1973, there is an attempted coup that takes place in which you have a rogue regiment of the Chilean army um, deploying tanks in front of La Moneda, the presidential palace in Santiago. Uh, that is large, that is put down. Uh, it's also one of the last moments uh, that the cordones themselves will mobilize and that all the cordones in Santiago will seize their territories, uh, erect barricades, cut off transportation to prevent any sort of large scale coup from taking place, essentially to try and isolate that regiment just within front of La Moneda to allow for the wings of the armed forces that are still loyal to the president at this point to put that down. So that is put down. And then in between late June 1973 and September 11th, 1973, is what um, scholars, specifically Peter Wynn, refer to as a creeping coup begins to take place. And the creeping coup has you know, a multifaceted strategy. As I mentioned earlier, there's the bombing of electrical grids. So you have you know, increasing blackouts, instability, things of that nature, right? Fear mongering uh, in very real sense, palpable senses. 
Um, you also have a shakeup amongst uh, different members of different branches of the armed forces, uh, which those that are uh, loyal to the constitution, that are the constitutionalists are pushed out. And as a result, then you have the coup plotters that are um, you know, ready to essentially uh, overthrow the government, um, achieve positions of authority in which that they can give orders. And this is a key factor. This may seem like a small factor, but the Chilean military had historically been trained in the Prussian model of military training, right? So it was a very strict regimented hierarchical structure in which uh, historically had been very loyal within that hierarchy. So it was important that the coup plotters would achieve positions of higher authority to be able to actually effectuate a coup, especially after the attempted coup fails in June. So on the morning of September 11th, 1973, um, you have Hawker Hunter jets that begin bombing the presidential palace. Uh, and you have a deployment of um, military forces throughout the city to put down any sort of armed force or any sort of resistance, right? Uh, leading up to this moment, you had deployments of both the Chilean militarized police, the Carabineros, which are actually functionally militarized. They're part of the armed forces in Chile. It's not just militarized in the sense of tactics and weaponry to raid factories in the search of arms, right? Things of that nature. So you already had um, this sort of daily occurrence taking place. And a consequence of that, right, is that then these forces know the weak spots in these factories. They know the capabilities of these factories and things like that. Uh, Cordon Vacuna Macena will actually be the place that will witness some of the fiercest fighting of what would be referred to as the Battle of Santiago. You know, often when we talk about the Chilean coup, we talk about it strictly as September 11th, 1973. Um, the Battle of Santiago actually rages for a few days after September 11th. It's not just a quick, um, you know, in and out mission. There is, there is, there are forms of resistance that take place. Um, and Vacuna Macena is one of the, the places that this takes place. There are two Chilean historians, Mario Garces and Sebastian Leva, that published a, a masterful, wonderful book um, that is all about, it's um, called The Coup in La Legua. And La Legua was a historic población that was just to the west of the Vacuna Macena factory. And the workers of factories in Vacuna Macena, specifically the Sumar textile mill that we mentioned earlier, um, will essentially lead. Um, a march gathering other workers, saving those that they can, uh, and essentially holding their ground for as long as they can in the Poblacion of La Legua. Uh, in fact, I have some testimonies of workers and documents that I've uncovered. Um, one worker in uh, particular described the, the battle that raged there as, as being like hell on earth. Um, that They had uh, helicopters firing from the sky. They had tanks surrounding them. Um, so they were um, under fire from both the, the, the land uh, and the air. And so ultimately then the government is overthrown, right? Um, Allende, it's unclear to this day if Allende committed suicide, if he was killed. Uh, we just, we don't know. We do know that he refused to leave the presidential palace. We do know that he delivers one final address, a very famous address um, to, over the radio of Chile. Um, and then after that, we, we know that, um, that his corpse um, appears in a lot of the, the materials that, that the military will put out. Military takes control of communication networks. Uh, many of the communication networks and press networks were already controlled by the right. 
Um, so it was very easy for them to, to gain access to these methods um, to sort of spread their message. Um, and this is where things, you know, historically speaking, get uh, very interesting in the difference between our sort of um, conventional wisdom and what actually took place or takes place, right? The original structure of the military uh, junta that takes command was uh, designed as a tripartite structure that would rotate amongst different branches of the armed forces to prevent precisely what happens with the figure of Augusto Pinochet taking power himself uh, to prevent such a thing from happening, right? Uh, ultimately, though, over the course of the 1970s, uh, you have Pinochet consolidating power. Uh, in fact, if you've ever seen the image of him that's sitting cross-armed with the sunglasses on, uh, it's, a, it's like one of the most recognizable photos of him from this time. That photo is actually the actual original version of the photo. You have the full junta behind him taking a picture. <laughs> but over time, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not so much even he did it, but it's that uh, that photo just over time became so associated with him because of such a jarring image of him sitting there um, that it, it sort of functionally recreated the sort of purging that he takes, that he'll carry out essentially. Uh, you know, also what they will do immediately is that they will uh, close um, the Congress. They will dissolve the CUT, the National Labor Federation that we discussed earlier. Uh, and they will essentially uh, dissolve the um, conciliation councils that oversaw any sort of collective bargaining. They will freeze any sort of petitions, pliegos, from factory laborers. Uh, and they will begin to purge uh, labor leaders across both the national spectrum of labor leadership, as well as, you know, through the course of 1974 and well into 1975, we'll be again purging factory level leaderships. Um, they will institutionalize torture. Um, they will institutionalize forced disappearance. Uh, and all of these things um, constitute how they are essentially able to, to hold on to power uh, in those early days. There's a state of siege that is declared. Uh, which means that all civil liberties um, have essentially been suspended. Uh, and all of this is in the name of national security. And that's really the key thing. Um, and so everything from the labor movement is shut down. Um, and then it will begin to reemerge. And that's really like where uh, I think my research and my dissertation, another key intervention that, we're, that I'm trying to make is that, you know, 1973 wasn't the end of the story. Like, yes, it was the end of the Cordones Industriales with a capital C and a capital I, but the idea of a territorial labor organization will reemerge in the late 1970s and in the 1980s when uh, protests against the dictatorship began to flourish. And this is something that, I mean, I guess this is sort of projecting into the future, but this is something that I, I was, I don't know, I've been thinking about and I, I don't quite know how to think about, which is the connection between like, can we draw a line between the Cardones, the sort of the, the pro-democracy movement that eventually, like, through Pinochet's incompetence and their skill, uh, like, brings down the dictatorship and the sort of the really vibrant, like, I mean, really for the last, like, 20 years, like, incredibly vibrant sort of, like, student protests, but I mean, just, just sort of like, like, leftist street movements in Chile. Because I mean, like I don't know, like I, I guess the, the the impression that I got when I was talking to like the Chilean organizers was that 
like organized labor wasn't playing much of a role in this. And so, yeah, I guess I was wondering, like, how 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 do we think about sort of this trajectory? And I know this is like fifty years, but no, yeah. I mean, I mean, my dissertation is trying to to, to sort of branch this full trajectory, and it's a beautiful, wonderful question. Um, and you're right, you know, the the activists that you spoke to, um, that is a very common, um, commonly held view, and it's a commonly held view for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that one of the what is seen as one of the main protagonists in the pro-democracy movements that take place in the 1980s are precisely those uh, figures we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, the pobladores. The pobladores are seen as the protagonists that protest the dictatorship, largely because they are, right? This is I'm not trying to say that they were not by any means. They clearly were. Um, we have great studies of this. Kathy Schneider's um, book, Shantytown Protest in Pinochet's Chile, is just a, a wonderful study of this. Um, they were protagonists, and the, the geographic space, the site of the poblaciones, is where a lot of the protests are going down. Um, but labor did play a part, and labor did play a key part and this is part of my argument, is that not only does labor play a part, labor plays a key part in initiating the protests that begin in the early 1980s. Now, by the late 1980s, the there people are certainly right that labor is no longer anything close to the power it was pre-1973 or even earlier in that decade by any means. But in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, specifically in the space of Akuna Makena and workers that are coming out of that tradition play incredibly instrumental and key roles. So for example, there's a gentleman, Manuel Bustos. He's a member of the Christian Democratic Party. He's a worker at the Sumar textile mill in the cotton plant specifically. He will um, at the time become president of Sumar's cottons union. He will then go on to, along with other labor leaders found the National Union Coordinator, or the CNS. He will become president of that, and he will become one of the key figures, along with other labor leaders, that will uh, initiate and lead to the pro-democracy protests that begin in the early 1980s. Uh, so much so that he is um, at one point relegated, which this is a way, one of the tactics the military used um, would be to relegate uh, perceived agitators or provocateurs uh, to different parts of the country, right, out of, say, Santiago in the case of Bustos. So at one point, he is relegated to the far north of the country. He's also exiled at a certain point. He's also jailed at a certain point. Um, so even if we, you know, even if we don't look at the archival record in terms of what Bustos is saying, what Bustos is doing, if we just look at what the military is doing to Bustos and to his colleagues in the CNS, then we that should tell us that they perceive them as a legitimate threat and that they perceive labor as a legitimate threat. And this really, you know, explains why you have a shift in um the dictatorship's policies with regard to labor between the early 1970s, the late 1970s and 80s. So here I'm drawing a lot on the work of Rodrigo Araya, uh, who is a scholar here in Chile, who has done great deal in showing that early in the dictatorship, you had a series of labor leaders who were opposed to Allende, 
who were still labor, right, still pro-labor, but anti-leftist and anti-Allende, who take control of some of the key labor federations, namely the Copper Federation, and begin to sort of designate themselves as the key uh, figures of labor. Um, and there's an attempt then by the dictatorship to essentially make a corporatist model of labor and integrate them and control them from the top down. Um, ultimately, that backfires because in doing so, they, the military refuses to recognize some of these individuals and instill their own um, sort of puppets, if you will, their own mm. labor leaders, which then causes resentment, which then pushes that group to an oppositional stance, um, which then allows for more connective tissue, more connections to be made between that group, which would be loosely referred to as the group of 10, uh, and individuals such as Bustos and others that are forming this national union coordinator. Those two groups will ultimately, in the early 1980s, um, form a new group, which is the National Workers Command. Um, and this actually group is formed at a point in which Bustos himself has been exiled out of the country. Um, so, you know, there's a debate to be had whether or not the formation of the command was an attempt to consolidate control away from the union coordinator in Bustos, which was much more open to working with members of the left and the communists at the time, compared to, say, the group of 10 who, you know, were much more opposed to working with leftists. Um, so that's really, you know, one of the big differences um, between labor in a pre-1973 period and a post-1973 period is there's still a, a struggle for labor rights, protection of workers, and unionism, right to strike, right to collectively bargain. But what's missing in that post-1973 period, or rather what has been murdered, disappeared, tortured, executed by the dictatorship, is uh, a theory of power for unions, right? The sort of leftist influence, uh, you know, you could call it Marxism, Leninism, you can call it sort of a social democracy, but some theory of power that animated unionism and animated the labor movement in the pre-1973 period, that is, is, is essentially being purged uh, over that course of the 1970s into the 1980s. Um, but in addition to these sort of national level developments, which, you know, for me, Bustos is the straight line that connects the territory of Vukuna Makena to this national level. Within Vukuna Makena itself, you have two groups that begin to emerge in the late 1970s, 1980s. Uh, the first would be the uh, Solidarity Group. Uh, and then the second would be uh, Union Unity. And both of these new organizations emerge in Vukuna Makena and emerge specifically as territorial organizations of labor. So they are in opposition to what Bustos and others are trying to do, which is reform the sort of national labor hierarchy, hierarchy, bureaucratic, or, you know, the bureaucratic, excuse me, approach to labor. They're specifically opposed to that and are arguing that labor should be organized territorially because it allows a greater flexibility for the workers to respond to the new realities of a dictatorship. And specifically to the new realities of the new constitution that the dictatorship puts in place in 1980, as well as the new labor plan that they put in place through a series of laws in the late 1970s and early 1980s that severely curtail labor's ability to both organize. Uh, so for example, the closed shop 
is um, essentially done away with. Uh, they also um, will limit the ability to strike. You could you can strike. However, after 30 days, um, the the management can begin hiring scab laborers essentially to break the strike. And if a strike lasted past 60 days, uh, that the management was allowed to fire all the striking workers because after 60 days, they were considered to have walked off the job and were no longer considered employees. Uh, also, one of the key uh, you know, innovations that uh, the sort of technocratic advisors to the dictatorship as, um, implements in the new labor code is the individual labor contract, right? Which means that workers now are contracted individually which also then prevents any sort of national level union from bargaining on behalf of a sector-wide or an industry-wide contract that is no longer allowed. And so it's for all of those reasons that you have these two groups begin to emerge and saying, no, we need to focus our efforts on the base and we need to focus them territorially. And for me, that is a straight line between the legacy of the Cordones and what we're seeing in the 1980s. And then the other sort of discursive straight line, like if that's the material connection, the discursive straight line is that these organizations are using the discourse of dignity and a dignified life in the extant source material that we have. That makes sense. And I, th- I think that also, but that also, I guess, partly explains why, like, why organized labor like ceases after that point, because I, g- I guess it is just sort of like the... It, it's the sort of the, the the neoliberal shifts in what's happening in terms of the actual law, and then actually, I don't know. I guess I guess I should ask about this. Like, is there also a sort of like, like, do you also get a sort of like, like an, an, another sort of geographic shift in in how factories are distributed, like through the years? Totally. You have essentially a deindustrialization, a policy of deindustrialization, yeah. and you have a total reversion to what we can think of as a 19th century economic export economy um, for Chile, right? So you have uh, much more focus and investment into commodity exports, be it um, the fishing sector, the agricultural sector, things like that, right? So, like, for example, if you go into your grocery store uh, and look at some of the fruits, specifically, say, grapes. More often than not, they're going to come from Chile, uh, especially in off seasons, right? The benefit of Chile being in the Southern Hemisphere for, say, consumers in the United States is that then you have access to things that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. Uh, And so the dictatorship will prioritize this um, over the idea of industry. So you have a total reversion to um, importing uh, goods and services that would have been produced nationally or locally. Um, and so what this means then for a lot of the labor that happens in these zones, right, is you have mass layoffs. Uh, that's another innovation um, that the dictatorship and the Chicago boys will introduce is the ability for management to fire um, at a mass level and have that be legal. Um, and so you have high, you have skyrocketing unemployment amongst um, factory level labor uh, such that, like, yes, by the 1980s, you have a refounding of a national labor confederation. Also, the acronym being the CUT. Uh, the difference, however, is that it's under such a much different labor framework. It's also in a situation in which industrial labor is just not the main sector of labor. 
Uh, and in its founding statutes, if the coot pre-1973 was identified as the only national labor confederation, the statutes post-1973 um, and in the late 80s when it's reformed allows for there to be other national confederations. Um, and actually, this is one of the great debates that takes place between those organizations at the base in Vukunamakena and these national level organizations is whether or not there should be one labor confederation or whether or not there should be many different labor confederations organized along ideological lines, which is essentially a code word for anti-communism, right? The, the idea of the ideological labor central was a way to exclude the left from gaining control in organized labor like it had in the pre-1973 period. And so by the dawn of 1990s, when democracy, or rather when democratic elections returned to Chile, you have labor in a much different position. Uh, and that's why you have this very weakening um, series uh, or, or period under the Concertacion government, the ruling coalition, the governing coalition that takes power in 1990 with Patricio Eowyn winning the presidency, um, it's just much different. Uh, and it's it's straightjacketed legally because the 1980 constitution is still in place, right? It's still in place to this day. Uh, and that's actually then, it's the period of the concertation that is the period where you really have the most weakening of um, labor. It's also the period we have the most privatizations that are taking place of former state-owned companies. It's we could say that it's the period that is the most neoliberal period uh, in Chile relative to the civilian, the period of civilian military dictatorship. Yeah, and I guess that's sort of like that that that's the thing that I guess gets you to well, the last sort of 20 years of like of student-led protests and of sort of ecological protests. I mean, I guess you, like the Mapuche have always been like fighting, but the, the, the way that... Oh, from, from Spanish colonial... Yeah, I mean, from like court, hundreds right? of the years. only in, yeah. indigenous group that was never conquered by the Spanish. Yeah, um, but, and I guess, but I guess like, like the, 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 the axis on which the left is sort of like built on like through that period just shifts and that's i guess where you get the modern like the, the sort of modern like configuration of the left that's been in the streets in the last sort of like you do and this years. is a this is the reason why I'm, i sort of draw a, a hard line ending my study in 2010 for two reasons one is that it's the uh 2010 is the first is the election of uh pinetta to the presidency uh sebastian pinetta as his first term in 2010. And so it's the first moment that someone from the Concertacion is not elected as the president. They had governed since from 1990 to 2010. So um, that's really the, what Peter Wynn and other scholars have referred to as the Pinochet period, which extends all the way from 1973 to that moment is inclusive of the Concertacion government because of their um, adherence to the neoliberal economic model. Um, that's when that period ends in 2010. Also a year later in 2011 is when the student protests. Yeah. Around. And that's when you have a, a new cycle in uh, Chilean social movements led by the students, right? Prior, you know, post the, the return of democracy, again, the return of democratic elections in 1990, I think this is a very important distinction between a return to democracy and a return of democratic elections. There's a, seems to be a confusion between, not a confusion, but a, 
a slippage between the form of democracy, i.e. free and fair elections, and the content of democracy. Um, and so a lot of people will refer to 1990 as the return to, of democracy. But I think that the past 30 years of, of governance in Chile shows us, especially the past two years of um, uprising and resistance against that model, show us that democracy has yet to, to fully return. Um, but in that period, you know, in the 1990s on, street protests were not seen as an affected, effective measure, um, as, a, as, a, as the way to protest, right? They obviously were effective in the period of dictatorship. Um, but after that, there no, there, there's a not, not necessarily a discrediting of sorts, right? But there's not the emphasis on them that there was during the dictatorship and certainly not that there was in the pre-1973 period. It's not until the students take to the streets in 2011 that you have this revival of the street protest as a, as a viable form um, of resistance and protest in Chile. And, you know, and it's no surprise then that in October 2019, when the, the Estaido, the uprising, takes place, that it's students that yep. were, once again, the vanguard of this. Um, and, you know, when they're um, jumping turnstiles in the subways to in protest of a proposed transportation hike. Um, I, was, I was actually lucky enough to be living here in early 2020, pre-pandemic, um, and a lot of people that I spoke to um, at protests and things like that were very quick to tell me that it was not 30 pesos. It's 30 years yeah. that they were protesting. Yeah. And, and you know, I, and I guess that also like the left wing forces that took over the state, like the, it's 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 the reason why a lot of that winds up sort of being about the Constitution. Because yeah, you know, you still have this. You still have Pinochet's like. I oh, exactly. The, the nineteen eighty constitution, yeah. constitution, constitution remains intact. Yeah, yeah, and oh God, I, I, I used to know the name of this. I said in one of the other episodes, I think, I think like the the guy who wrote it, like, was like an enormous Hayek fanboy and called it like the Constitution of Liberty or something. And it, yeah, it was it was a hand it was a hand selected team um, yeah. of very few individuals that was handpicked by the dictatorship to write the constitution. Um, you know, there was the, there was a veneer of uh, democratic support insofar as the dictatorship in 1980 holds a referendum on whether or not to vote up, down, yes or no for the new constitution. Right. Um, the yes vote won. However, there is uh, many uh, sources at the time, as well as scholars that have claimed that that uh, victory was not a valid <laughs> victory um, yeah. by any means. Um, but, you know, it, right now uh, in the post 2019 period, um, a sort of effect of the uprising that took place is there is a constitutional convention that's taking place as we speak uh, here in Santiago um, that's headquartered in the former National Congress. Uh, during the dictatorship, the uh, Congress has moved to the port city of Valparaiso, away from Santiago. Uh, but in the old National Congress building is where the new uh, Constitutional Convention is taking place. And actually, two nights ago, there was a marathon voting session uh, in which uh, a series of social rights were adopted into the into the text of the new Constitution. And these social rights included, among other things, the right to unionization, the right to strike, the right to collectively bargain, 
the right for workers via unions to have a say in the uh, direction and business of an enterprise, of a business itself, to participate in management, essentially. Uh, but it also included things such as a right to healthcare, a publicly funded healthcare system, the right to social security, publicly funded, and it included a right to housing, which specifically included the phrase of a right to a dignified and <laughs> adequate home, yep. as well as a right to the city that included the phrase uh, that the right to the city is for the development of a dignified life. Uh, and so really that is kind of the epilogue um, to, to the story that we've been talking about this whole time. Now, you know, we don't know if the constitution itself will be adopted. Um, there's going to be an exit vote on September 4th of this year in which uh, Chileans under a, a, it's a mandatory vote will vote up or down on whether or not to adopt the new constitution. So we can't say for certain if these rights will actually become rights of citizenship in Chile. Um, but as of now, those rights are included in the text that will be voted on in September. Yeah. And I think, I, I, I think that's a pretty good place to end it unless you have anything else that you want to. No, I think that that's a really, you know, there's a really nice know. symmetry there. Um, and, you know, I stayed up far too late the other night watching that vote. Uh, I think it went to like two in the morning, um, but it was a, you know, it was an exciting thing to see. Um, and, you know, it is an exciting moment to, to be here in Chile, um, especially after having to be away for two years during, during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, you know, and I hope that, um, my ramblings are, are sensible to your <laughs> listeners, um, and, um, that they're able to take something from it because, uh, I do think there's an importance in this history, especially, you know, this year is the 50 year anniversary of the Cordonas emergence. And so uh, it's a great time to, to sort of spread knowledge of this, this moment in Chilean history. Yeah. And I guess, uh, do, do you have anything like that you want to plug? Uh, no, I don't have anything specifically. Uh, um, yeah, no, still cranking away in the archives and working on <laughs> my dissertation. So sadly, I don't have a, a book to plug or anything like that. But, you know, give me a couple years uh, and yeah. hopefully I'll have a, a book. <laughs> yeah, a I'll book have you back horizon. on when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, in the meantime, uh, you too can form a large section of industrial democracy in your workplace that involves taking it over. Um, yeah, go go do that. Uh, <laughs> this this has been it could happen here. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod. Actually, by the time this is dropping, we will be a few days away from uh, Margaret Kildroy's new series, Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, uh, which is rad. You're gonna hear a lot of cool people doing cool things. It is dropping on May Day on May first, and uh, after that, we have we we have another show dropping, which is which is which is uh, Ghost Church about ghost churchy things. It's it's gonna be good. It's, it's Jamie Loftus. It's Jamie Loftus doing Jamie Loftus things about a bunch of a bunch of the sort of like American ghost churches and people who talk to ghosts. So yeah, go listen to that. Have fun. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Hey. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Hello, it could, welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast that is my podcast now. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and with me is the Webby Award-winning Sophie Lichterman as our producer, <laughs> as well as the actual hosts of the show, who uh, go without mentioning because I don't see any reason to include them. <laughs> Can that just be the intro to every episode from now yeah. on? <laughs> <laughs> this is better than our like all of our regular intros. Oh, I loved that. Oh. Um, yeah. So, uh, w- what are we talking about today? Also on podcast, Garrison Davis and Christopher Wong. Hello. Yeah. So, so today we are we are talking about the sort of long and incredibly tragic history of Japanese anarchism. Well, okay. 
I should specify this. Japanese anarchism before World War II, because after World War II was an entirely different story. And uh, as much as I love people in construction helmets, just like beating the shit out of cops with large sticks, uh, that story is extremely complicated. Uh, If you want to hear me uh, talk more about that story a little bit, uh, the third part of my Nobusuke Kishi episode has a lot of people in construction helmets with sticks. But, you know, this is... You know, okay. So the, the the history of anarchism generally is is the history of tragedy. But even even by by anarchist standards, the the history of Japanese anarchism is just an absolute welter of heartbreak and loss. Um, out of of all of the people that we're going to talk about today, exactly one of the non-Russian anarchists is going to live to see world the end of World War II, and he's Korean. Uh, every single other person is either going to be executed by the state, assassinated, kill themselves, or drink themselves to death. So. <laughs> Well, this is uh, good to have this is this is an extremely bleak story in a lot of ways. Good to have one of those optimistic episodes every once in a while. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, I think the 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 as the long optimistic... as no one gets thrown down a well. Uh, uh, well, okay, it's it's unclear whether anyone got thrown down a well. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead, and I yeah, don't actually I... <laughs> know. We'll, we 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 will get to the wells. Uh, yeah, I also, okay, so th- there's a lot of Japanese anarchists, and we don't have that much time, so if, if you're, like, in a Sawa uh, Sakataro stan, um, I'm sorry, uh, we can't cover all of them. And the other thing about the history of anarchism in Japan that is weird is that the beginning of the story predates their actually being anarchists in Japan, or specifically their being Japanese anarchists. Um, th- th- There's this huge degree of sort of, like, cultural exchange and influence running between Japan and Russia by virtue of the fact that they are, you know, next to each other. Um, And especially in the 1870s and 1880s, this is one of the sort of, uh, this is important again, because Russia in this period is like, this is like the hotbed of anarchism, right? Like they're, they're they're Mm -hmm. killing the czar. They're, they're, they're doing all the things. They're going to the countryside. They're, They're the Russian anarchists are sort of on the move. And a lot of famous Russian anarchists wind up, like, in Japan. Uh, Bakunin is there for, like, he, he, like, he has some extremely complicated arrangement where he, like, sneaks on a boat and he, like, gets out and he beats one of the sort of, like, samurai, like, Meiji uh, restoration revolutionaries and they chat for a bit and then he leaves. So he, he, you know, Bakunin's not. This is when he was escaping Siberia. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, he's escaping Siberia and then he somehow convinces, like, the American embassy or something to like, let him on a boat to Japan. It's, it's a very weird right. story. It's like all things Bakunin are, but the, the, the most prominent anarchist to spend time in Japan is, uh, Lev Mechnikov. Um, Mechnikov is like, he's like a pretty big deal in, in Russian revolutionary circles. Like he's, he's considered like, okay. So the, 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 the big sort of like anarchist left wing movement to Japan is, is, is the populist, right? It's called the road Um, and there, there's two big figures in it. There's uh, Nikolai Chernichevsky and uh, this guy, uh, Lev Menchikov. And, you know, he's uh, Menchikov, like, he knows everyone. He knows, like, he, he's friends with just, like, every single person. And we will get to more of his friends later. But, like, he's a counterpart of Bakunin. Um, he, 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 has, he has a very similar career to Bakunin in a lot of ways where he just sort of, like, runs around especially like eastern europe he's like runs around the world being in revolutions mm-hmm. um which is good work if you can get it yeah yeah it's it's pretty exciting and he doesn't die which is sort of incredible oh well yeah. love, love that for him 
So he's yeah, still he's, around? By a hard age. Oh. Yeah, this is very sad. You know, well, I mean, he, 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 he you know, look, look, this is, this is the goal of Russian cosmism. No, is it actually cosmism? I have no, no. idea. Yeah, the, I think it's the, cosmism. The cosmonaut people. Who yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, they would bring back all the dead people. Oh, no, I don't know about this. I only know a weird thing where there was like anarchist cosmonauts in like 1920s Russia. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, their their whole thing was like, uh, okay, so they, 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 they thought that the anarchists had like been defeated in the revolution because they were insufficiently committed to bringing the dead back to life. And that, that, that you know, their whole thing was like, they, they like, they're, they're some of the people who were involved in like the Soviet like rocket programs. And they're doing this because they want to colonize the moon and Mars so they can fit all of the dead proletariat they're going to bring back to life. Wait, are you telling the truth to me? Are yeah, you this is this is about... all true. This is an, this is all true. This is amazing. It's incredible. I've been, <laughs> I've been trying to fight for um the anarchist necromancer league for so long, which our slogan is um raise the dead to fight like hell for the living. <laughs> <laughs> That's that rules. It's incredible. But yeah, no, like uh the Russian cosmism. It's a weird one. Cosmism. It's like a weird mix of like like natural philosophy quote-unquote which is just like different forms of like folk magic or whatever and like religion and spiritual stuff but also it's like a predecessor to like the modern transhumanism um it's an it's an interesting little collection of of ideas that was popular yeah. at like the very beginning of the 20th century it, it, it's, it's okay. part of my thesis that uh no one normal has ever been involved in the production of a rocket like, it's I like, mean, like you have Jack Parsons, Jack Parsons. you have yeah. the Cosmists are like on the Soviet end, and then there's just like the Nazis, and it's like, oh, zero normal people. I have no counter argument. There was that, <laughs> because there was the guy who did all the multi-stage rocketry, the nihilist who killed the Tsar, who built the bomb that killed the Tsar. He like, when I talk about this in my podcast, oh, you probably you, already you, listened you, to this. You, you have a podcast. Whoa. Yeah, I really just I'm here. I'm going to plug this every like five minutes on uh, <laughs> this episode. <laughs> um, you could learn about the bomb maker who killed the czar and his uh, what he brought to the world in terms of rocketry and uh, manned rocket travel. Anyway, uh, uh, please continue. Uh, on, on, what, on what show, Margaret? Well, OK, is this podcast that I'm recording on right now? When does it come out? When well, are you listening Thursday. to it, dear readers? OK, well, then next Monday. You can listen to cool people who did cool stuff, <laughs> which is this. my podcast. Yeah, I'm so good <laughs> at my job. Anyway, my job is to interrupt you with, please tell me more about the Cosmos <laughs> and how they relate to Japan. The Cosmos actually have nothing to do with this, uh, unfortunately. Oh, um, okay. But yeah, but uh, uh, Lev, uh, Lev Meshnikov, like he also, so he, he like fights with Garibaldi to reunify Italy. He's just like all over the place. Yeah, but he, yeah. he he's an interesting guy because okay so there's like a lot of foreigners who go to japan but he like makes japanese friends and like learns japanese before he goes there which makes him like utterly different than like 99 percent of the people who are writing like westerners who are writing about japan in this period who like don't speak very good japanese and never leave their houses so nothing has changed yeah, yeah. Well, ex 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 mm -hmm. except weirdly, this one anarchist guy's doing better. Oh no! And I mean, nothing has changed from now. Oh where yeah, no, yeah. Where no Westerners actually—they just pretend to care about Japan. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's a it's it's time. There's actually that's one of the running themes of these two episodes is like there's a lot of stuff about this about anarchism and about Japan just like don't change. 
But, the, you know, so one of the things that uh, Meshikov winds up doing is he winds up spending two years teaching at this thing called the Tokyo School of Foreign Languages. And this, this has a bunch of major impacts, one of which is, is on Meshnikov himself, who he, he becomes heavily influenced by, by the major restoration, which he thinks of as like this, like, he, he looks at, it, at this as like as a revolution, like this is an anti-feudal revolution, this is the most successful social revolution of the 19th century, it's like, he thinks that it's like destroyed the sort of stratified class system and creates this like possibility of like mass social mobility for commoners. and. Okay, so this is like not the best interpretation of what's going on with with the Meiji Restoration. Where I mean, so the Meiji Restoration sort of ends the feudal system in, in in Japan. It does a lot of other bad things. What is it like? I don't know that much about this. Yeah, yeah. And so okay, maybe so, the audience doesn't either. Okay, so the Meiji Restoration is a thing that happens where so so Japan has been ruled by a shogun for like a long time. Mm-hmm. And the shogun runs a feudal system. It's very elaborate. Everyone has all these sort of rigid hierarchical castes. But eventually, there's this kind of um, like th- there's there's this sort of it- it's complicated. It's this kind of nationalist movement by a bunch of um, like a bunch of the samurai clans who uh, this is this is happening in the 1860s, and they mobilize to overthrow like the shogunate and basically like restore the emperor to power. The emperor has been like a, a puppet head, like figurehead mm-hmm. guy for like 200 years. And they bring him back to power. I, because I'm a hack, I'm a fraud and a fraud. I'm forgetting their exact slogan. It's something, it's something like it's revere the emperor. And I can't remember what the other part of the slogan is. It's very similar to the, to the box rebellion slogan. It's, it's this sort of, I mean, there's a lot of things going on here. It's kind of a reaction to so in, in the in the 1860s, like Japan is sort of forcibly opened to the world by like Commodore Perry showing up with a bunch of like the largest gunboats anyone has ever seen. Um, and this like this forces Japan to sort of like abandon its isolationist positions, and yeah, and, and you know, and you, you you get this sort of class of intellectuals who are looking at this and are going like, okay, if we don't do something, like we're going to get colonized. Mm-hmm. And so they do, and the thing that they do is that they do this revolution and they overthrow, um, they they overthrow the shogunate. There's all this like there's there's like a trillion anime set in this period because there's like there's there's like like there there are there are squads of samurai swordsmen like running around like stabbing each other in Tokyo and like Kyoto and like it's it's wild. It, it is it is a it is a time, and and this sort of this is what sort of consolidates the modern Japanese nation state. Um, you know, I, I've talked about this in my Kishi episodes, but like it sets off this wave of colonialism. They like they conquer Hokkaido, they conquer the Ryoku Islands, they do all this horrible colonialism stuff. But there's there's it, it it's really unclear what the revolution is actually going to mean because like there there has been a revolution, right? Like the the mm-hmm. sort of like feudal like class system has been swept away. There's all of this sort of there's all this this energy in the masses. There's like one of one of the things that uh, uh, Meshnikov finds is like he, so he he gets to Japan in like the in like the eighteen I think it's eighteen seventies, um, and he's seeing like the first signs of discontentment with with the the sort of the 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 Meiji Restoration, um, which is the, the restoration of the emperor, um, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of people who look at this and were like, oh hey, we're gonna we finally like defeated the sort of oligarch class that like rules all of us, 
And then there's a new oligarch class and they're like, wait, hold on. And so there's, there's like, there's a series of like ex samurai rebellions. There's this whole sort of like, like he, he like, like, uh, Meshikov literally like gets there in the middle of an uprising and okay. he's just like in the streets and he has no idea what's going on because the guy he'd been talking to winds up being in the uprising and, you know, so he gets there and, but, but what, what, what he sees also is he sees this upheaval, but he sees that this enormous network of like cooperative movements. Um, and he sees a bunch of mutual aid groups. He sees like villages who are like pooling all of the resources so they can send kids to like school in the cities. He sees like, he sees the government failing to provide services for people because there's an uprising going on and also that the government. And so people are sort of, people are taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. And this has an enormous influence on him. Um, and he starts to, you know, like the way he thinks about anarchism changes and he's, he's like, he, he starts to think about sort of like anarchism as cooperation, like mutual cooperation between people, cool. like mutual aid enters this sort of lexicon. And okay. So, there's a there's a a, a, a modern historian named uh, Sho Konoshi who writes this book called uh, Anarchist Modernity Anarchist Modernity Cooperatism. Wait, hold on. Yeah, Anarchist Modernity Cooperatism and Japanese uh, Russian Intellectual Relations in Modern Japan. And he makes the argument basically it's a really that catchy like title. <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's there's two there there the. It, it's it's a better title than I'm reading it because there's there's two there's like a, a heading and like a subheading and okay, I just uh-huh. read it straight because I'm yeah, a clown. Yeah. But he, he's making the argument that this this is like this is actually like something that's very important in the development of narco communism because this guy he knows everyone like the, the anarchist geographer like uh, Elise Reclus mm-hmm. I, I, I can't pronounce his name I think uh, it's Reclus like, Reclus yeah I think I, so but I I can't I, not with a gun to my head I'm not sure yeah anyway yeah like they're roommates. Like, oh, they're like, they're, like they live together for like a while. And like he, he, he writes the Japan entry and like the encyclopedia. Uh, he's friends with Kropotkin. Mm-hmm. And after, after his, his sort of like thoughts starts to change about mutual aid, you start to see a lot of the same stuff. Like, you know, like this is like, he, he's, he's there before Kropotkin writes mutual aid. And then you see, you see mm-hmm. all the sort of mutual aid stuff popping up with Kropotkin. And, you know, I, I don't know how seriously to take the argument that like, you're sort of seeing like that that a lot of this theory is sort of a rebound of a reflection of what they were seeing in Japanese society but it's interesting and I think I should mention it because I don't know like there's there's this whole sort of intellectual sphere of people who are like associated with anarchists the other thing that happens in this period is that like um so there there's a bunch of like Meshnikov like has a bunch of friends in Russia who all got arrested because they were in like terrorist groups and he he's able to get like a whole bunch of these people to like, he's able to get them like exiled and their exile is they go to Japan, they teach with him. And so suddenly okay. there's like, there's like a bunch of people who are now like these people, these, these populists are like writing stories about like the stuff they were doing and like all the people who are still fighting in, in Russia. So there's suddenly, there's all these people who are like reading about the Russian populists mm-hmm. uh, in Japan. And, and, you know, and this is there's there's this kind of like anarchist cultural sphere that exists in Japan, like before there's anarchists. Um, like before the other big Japanese example, anarchists. Yeah, yeah, for Japanese yeah. anarchists, there'll, there'll be like one, like, yeah, there's like a couple of Russian anarchists, and like, yeah, but uh, like uh, Meshnikov leaves at one point. The, the other big thing with this is Tolstoy, okay. who is like Tolstoy in in like the the, the 1880s, 1890s, like early 1900s. He's like he's the like he. he I think he's like the the most translated author like on earth in Japan. 
And it's, they're not just reading his, like, literary work. They're reading his, like, theology, his political work, which is important mm-hmm. because Tolstoy is, like, a Christian anarcho-pacifist, right? Yeah. And and this influences this. There's this kind of, like, th- there's there's a lot of sort of, like, left-wing anti-imperial strains of Christianity that pop up in Japan. And this is one of the reasons huh. for it is because everyone's reading Tolstoy. And so you, you, you get the seeds of this anarchist movement that – Eventually sprout into a man named, uh, oh god, this guy's name's actually hard. Kotoku Shusui? I, I, I'm butchering the last part of it, I'm sorry, my Japanese does not extend to this many U's and I's in a row. But Kotoku, Kotoku, he's, he, he's an interesting guy because, so he doesn't, so he, he has like a whole career before he becomes an anarchist. He's he's like he's a very prominent journalist, intellectual. Like he mm-hmm. writes in a newspaper, it's very famous, everyone reads it. And he's the heir apparent to this other like very famous sort of liberal uh journalist who, again, because Lev Meshnikov knows literally everyone, was like a friend of Lev Meshnikov. I don't he just knows every single person on earth. It's incredible. I Yeah, no, that rules. That's yeah, like goals, like, you know. Yeah, I unless mean, he ever is, turned, if he ever snitched, to be terrible. Uh, apparently, <laughs> he never did. So yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's still around. So I mean, he he still could snitch. He's yeah. still around. He still has the chance. Oh, I guess everyone he would snitch on is dead. So yeah. hmm. makes it harder. The ethics get blurrier. Yeah, yeah. So Kodaku is like he, he's kind of like a standard liberal, but. He gets involved with the, with the anti-war movement. Um, specifically, this is this is the the anti uh, uh, why well, it's, it's anti a lot of wars because J- Japan is fighting an enormous series of wars in like the early 1900s. Um, yeah, they kicked Russia's ass at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they fight, I they fight uh, Japan. They oh, fight Japan. Sorry, they fight China. Yeah, uh, and okay. do do you know who else is fighting China? I I don't oh. know. I'm afraid to know. The products and services that support the show. Are we supported by American nationalism? Apparently. Yes. Question mark. <laughs> and we're back with the first rush, with the first actual Japanese anarchist. So in 1900, Kotoku writes this book called Imperialism Monster of the 20th Century, which is See, like, that is a that's better a good title. title. Good title. Yeah, yeah. yeah great title. No he rules. And this is significant for a number of reasons. One of which is that, like, this is one of the first major like books about imperialism. Like, th- th- there there are some other Western writers who stuff like predates this, but like, this is 1900. This is before Lenin has written about imperialism. This is before like Hobson. This is before Luxembourg. And I- I'm just gonna read a little bit from it because it rules. So this is from the first section. It's called "Imperialism: A Wildfire in an Open Field." <laughs> Imperialism spreads like a wildfire in an open field. All nations bow down to worship this new god, sing hymns to praise it, and have created a cult to pay it, to pay it adoration. Look at the world that surrounds us. In England, both governments and citizens have become fervent acolytes of imperialism. In Germany, the war-loving emperor never loses a chance to extol his virtues. As for Russia, the regime has long practiced a policy of imperialism. France, Austria, and Italy are all delighted to join the fray. Even a young country like the United States has recently shown its eagerness to master this new skill. And finally, this trend has reached Japan. Ever since our great victory in the Sino-Japanese War, Japanese of all classes burn with fervor to join the race for an empire, like a wild horse freed from its harness. 
So, I, you know, the one thing that he got incorrect is, as I understand by spending a lot of time on Twitter, is that actually only the United States is imperialist and any That's actions, true. especially by Russia. I was very confused that he included Russia as the, I can't finish the sentence with a straight face. <laughs> Um, what? Russia would be... Also, how could it be imperialism if Lenin hadn't yet defined the term for us? Oh, this is... Okay, this is the whole thing. Okay, so so Kuroko gets, like, a lot of shit from this book, because, for, like, from later on, from Japanese leftists, because they're like, he's insufficiently materialist. And it's like, yeah, he is mostly just talking... Like, the book's mostly about, like, how patriotism and nationalism, like, create this stuff. It doesn't look at economics much, but, like... Oh, no. Okay, th- there's a whole problem here, which is that if you try to apply Lenin's definition of imperialism to Japan, it doesn't work. Because, like, like when Japan is invading China, they have, like, I think it's, like, 50 total factories. Yeah. Like, they, 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 everything is completely backwards. Yeah. Like, it's, like, yeah, and, like, like you know, like, so, like, 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 Lenin's imperialism is supposed to be, like, the highest stage of capitalism. But then you go to Japan, Japan's, like, barely started the transition to capitalism, like... If Lenin's imperialism is supposed to be about like debt exports, right? But Japan is just conquering countries while they're just literally like borrowing, yeah, like, massively from other states to fund their industrializations. Everything does nothing; none of it works. And Kotaku gets like again, he he has, he has like a lot of shit for this, but it's like no, he's right. <laughs> like Lenin yeah. is Lenin is wrong. <laughs> Lenin's analysis, if you try to apply it, Japan does not work, and Kotaku does. So imagine, you know, that. yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, Kotoko, I think, like, he, he's keyed into things that the Marxists aren't, like, specifically about, like, about the power of nationalism. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like, obviously, if, if, you, if you go a bit later, it's like, well, all of these people who are like, oh, imperialism is the highest age of capitalism, and then all of their parties vote to go to war with each other in World War One, Like, mm-hmm. you know, okay, Kotoko, I think, like, gets this because his relationship to socialism and anti-imperialism are, like, backward from the Marxists, right? Where the, the Marxists arrive at anti-imperialism, like, from their Marxism. Mm-hmm. But Kotoko, like, becomes a socialist because he sees it as a way to stop wars. Like, yeah. that's, like, his big thing is he's, he's in the anti-war movement. He wants his wars to stop. And that's, just, this, that's the right direction to do shit. Yeah. You should do shit because, like, you don't pick the label because what's cool. You pick... You figure out what you believe, and then you pick the label that fits what you believe instead of the other way around, you know? Yeah, and, and you know, and, and it means that he's less sort of, like, he's less dogmatic than, like, his successors mm-hmm. because, you know, I mean, because he, he, he's, wor- he's working off of his actual principles versus mm-hmm. sort of, like, this, like, dictation stuff. And, I mean, he's, he's he, in, in 1903, he publishes The Essence of Socialism, which is, like, this is, like, the first, like, socialist, like, book written by a Japanese person. It's like one of the, I think there's maybe like one or two other ones that are before, but this is, this is like the first big one. Okay. And he, so he's, he's also like, he's involved in founding the Japanese socialist party. And then he gets like arrested and sent to the U S and <laughs> something happens when he's in the U. I don't know. There's, I've seen like six conflicting accounts. Like I've seen accounts that say he joins, he joins the IWW. I, I don't know. I've seen other people say he lived, he lived in a commune, but like he definitely read Kropotkin. and he like becomes an anarchist. Let's decide he did all of these things. Yeah, lived, lived in a commune and tried to organize the commune with the IWW. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, he, he, this guy is enormously influential in the history of Japanese left. Like, he is the guy, when he comes back in 1906, he's the guy who introduces the concept of the general strike to Japan. Yeah. Like, he's the first guy to write about it. He's very cool. He, he also, like, yeah, you know, he, he starts pushing this and start, this, he starts pushing anarchism and sort of direct action as an, like, instead of, like, doing parliamentary stuff. And he translates, like, 
Kropotkin's work in Japanese. He translates the, like the, the Communist Manifesto. He does labor mm-hmm. organizing. He's sort of like all over the place. And, you know, like labor and the anti-war movement are like two of the like big currents that are producing anarchists. But the, the other like big current that's making anarchists in this period is feminism. Because, okay, so I stop me if this is in any way surprising, but the late 1800s and early 1900s are not a time to be a woman in Japan. What? Really? Yeah, yes. it's not a good time like anywhere. But yeah. it's not Japan... not even now. It's not the best. Yeah, like, I mean, it, I will it say it could be improved. I will say it's 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 better than this. This yeah. is like sure, like the, the the major regime is sort of like consolidating itself. As it's consolidating itself, it gets like progressively more like patriarchal, misogynist. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from the book uh, "Reflections on the Way to the Gallows," which is this. It's a it's a great book. It's it's, it's, also like, a, it's a collection title. of. Yeah, well, so it, that that's uh, oh God, I forget. One one of the Japanese anarchists who's about to die, like that's the title of like a piece that she wrote. Um, and they th- th- this book is like a collection of Jack of Japanese feminist writings, mostly from people who get killed by the state because that's what happens when you're a feminist <laughs> in Japan in this period. Um. Oh, yeah, it's bad. Uh, okay, so I'm going to read the quote from this. In 1892, the government forbid women to make political speeches, and in 1890 made it illegal for women to participate in political activities whatsoever. Women were forbidden to even listen to political speeches. The police security regulations of 1900 reinforced these strictures. Article 5 of the regulations prohibited women from forming any political organization whatsoever. Jesus. Yeah, it's like that's like a level of restriction that like I'm not sure I've ever seen like that explicit level of no you can't do this. Yeah, I feel like it's usually implicit in a lot of western yeah. countries and then also like one of the things that really strikes sticks out to me about that is that I'm so used to thinking about I think people tend to think about like this like linear progress model where like if you go back really far like all women and all other oppressed categories had it terrible and then just slowly gets better or whatever. But if they're passing these laws in 1900, there's an implicit, it was a little better before 1900. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, it very specifically gets worse. Um, yeah. Like, so one, one of the things with the, the, the 1898 legal codes is that it, like it literally just legally enshrines like patriarchal control of the households. And this, this, this is, this is a massive reactionary shift in Jack in sort of Japanese, like domestic and political culture. Like, this like that that kind of patriarchal control of the household was like a thing in some samurai families, but like it wasn't a thing for there, there's a huge number of popular classes like just that didn't exist, mm-hmm. and they just legislated into existence. And like, you know, I mean, like the the, the things that, the things that they're applying here, like women need consent of their father to marry. Um, for this another quote for the book. One of the provisions held that quote cripples and disabled persons and wives cannot undertake any legal action. Fucking hell. Uh huh. Yeah, so th- this is this is this is an incredibly reactionary state, and there's also like there's a lot of sex trafficking going on, like like actual like there's a lot of people just being grabbed off the street. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a it's a it, it is a disaster, and it 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 is into this patriarchal mess that like several generations of Japanese narco feminists step into. Um, the, the most famous of the first round is Kano Sugako, who's she she's a, a socialist author who converts to well she's originally socialist and she converts to anarchism which is like a thing that happens a lot in this period and she she's working as a journalist and you know she she's she's like she's a very sort of controversial figure the government like hates her 
So she meets Kotaku and they have an affair. And this is like one of the other things that keeps happening here is there's a lot of like free love stuff going around mm-hmm. the Japanese anarchist circle at this time. Uh-huh. And this, this has two consequences. One is a lot of men use it to be really shitty. And uh-huh. two, it means there is like, there is a, again, this is, this is, this is, this is the big, like nothing has ever changed in the anarchist movement. There are so many relationship drama things. <laughs> nothing like, has changed. There time are so many. The, time is the flat circle. <laughs> like, like there are two different times. When the most famous Japanese anarchist man and the most famous Japanese anarchist woman wind up in a relationship, uh, it ends with it, with them splitting the movement and them, and them both dying in prison. Like uh-huh. this happens twice. <laughs> that exact sequence happens twice. It's nuts. It's, it's, like they're they're just they're just doing polycule shit. Like it's. Oh. They just need better mediators. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I mean, this is, this is a thing with, like, the Japanese, like, so the, the, the Japanese anarchist movement, like, has a huge feminist wing, but, like, the men still suck. Mm-hmm. Like, they just keep being bad. And so, you know, and the, the other thing about this is that uh, Kano Sukako is, like, enormously more militant than, like, almost every other, any other anarchist that's alive in Japan at this point. And so, she, in 1910, she gets involved with the plan to assassinate the emperor, um, and th- this becomes known as the high treason incident and the state like gets wind of this. They arrest her, they arrest, uh, uh, Kotaku and they arrest like 22 other, I think 22, yeah, 22 other anarchists. Um, now like five of these people are like even tangentially involved in this plot. Um, but they, the, 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 this is th- okay. So I. I, I I can't say that the, the the Japanese government only does this to anarchists because they do this to fascists like once, but like they do this thing where, okay, so they have a bunch of people that they want to execute, right? So they they find one person who's like an ideological figure, and they're like, okay, you're now in the middle of this, and you're the link between like this group and this other group we want to kill, and this other group we want to kill, and this other group we want to kill, and so they convict, uh, like Shusio, um and uh kind of Sagaku, like they, they all get convicted and they all get executed yeah and so th- th- this case is also interesting because there's a bunch of people who the the state like wanted to kill but they couldn't because they'd already arrested they'd already they like this is like two years after like a mass arrest mm-hmm. of like half of the japanese anarchist movement and so they have all these people who are in prison and it's like e- even by like the standards of the japanese state mm-hmm. it's like okay how are we going to convict all of these people who have been in prison for two years of trying to of like being a part of this plot to kill the emperor that was like organized outside of the jail. Uh, uh-huh. And so this this is the thing that saves like a huge portion of the Japanese anarchist <laughs> movement that saves it from literally so like the, the, this the, the high treason incident kills like most of the famous anarchists in Japan but it leaves like like a couple alive and that's why they're alive because they were all in prison. Oh god. Wait, how are they going to kill the emperor? I uh, the the plot didn't get very far i I think they were trying to use a bomb Mm -hmm. but the police got wind of it like very very early not classic so they they never really got much like past the planning stage okay um this is a shame yeah yeah and uh do do, do you know what else never gets uh very far plus past the planning stage when they're trying to assassinate the emperor of japan uh Um, is it the ads because they don't know how to do direct action because they're too enmeshed in capitalism that that yes. is that is actually exactly what we were talking about margaret thank you so much 
And we're back. I, I I was genuinely trying to see if I could like think of an of a company that had like tried to kill the Japanese emperor, and I couldn't think of one. And I was like, hmm, this says something about society. This does. This is a real real solid critique we have here. I really hope that uh, ten years from now, this all seems very dated. You're like, of course, someone major company has tried to. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Please one continue. Can, one can dream. <laughs> So Kanosogaku is dead. Kotaku is also dead. Uh, and this this means that it's time for sort of like another generation of of anarchists to try to fill in the gaps. Wait, so they're executed? Um, yeah, yeah, they're dead. Like okay. they they just die. They, they kill they kill they kill like twenty two of the anarchists or something. Okay. And I mean this is a, this is a huge purge. I mean they they, okay. they wind up executing just like there's just like a, a like a, a, a sympathetic like Buddhist priest mm-hmm. gets executed. Um, uh. When is this? Uh, this is 1911. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. So this is 1911. Um, and actually, there's there's another interesting thing about this. Uh, Kano Sugaku becomes the first woman ever executed by the Japanese state. Uh, she will not be the last. Oh. Like, oh boy. Um, feminist icon. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> equal rights, equal fights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There, there, there's another like very influential narcofeminist uh, who's emerges slightly after, and like just like in like 1914, 1915, um, is Ito Noe. She, she's an egoist anarchist who eventually like yes, finally, <laughs> finally we bring it up. I that that's all I have to say, buddy. That's not true. I'm really <laughs> but that's like almost all I have to say. But she 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 takes over the editorial position of this uh this magazine called Blue Stocking Magazine, which is like. Japan's I think it's like, it's like this is like the most important feminist magazine in Japan and she takes over the editorial staff about it and mm-hmm. her her work is really interesting in a lot of ways because it, it 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 just it just straight up is contemporary feminism in a way that like a lot of the stuff from this period isn't like if 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 you go and read the arguments she's having she's arguing that sex work should be legal and that everyone should be able, should be able to get abortions because women should have autonomy over their bodies yeah it's like Ego- oh, rules. keep winning <laughs> Well, yeah. some, well, sometimes. <laughs> well, this is this is this is not going to end well for her. Um, well, yeah, for sure. yeah, but you know what? Well, that is also a trend. It doesn't end well for any of us in a long enough timeline. You know, like all that matters is the time. What That's we do true, with the is, time we are particularly given. bad. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and I think so. She's able to do this for like a year, and the Japanese state looks at this and is like, absolutely not, and, and shuts the magazine down. Um. And so she she gets forced to move on to other things, and the other thing she moved on she moves on to is uh, being extremely heavily involved in the free love movement. Of course, yeah, yeah, and and but also, and th- this is the thing that's that's interesting about this sort of period of, of Japanese uh, anarchism is that like the egoists are all also syndicalists. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and she, she so she she's like heavily involved in labor organizing, and this is how she comes into contact with her partner, who she's like cheating on her imprisoned husband who will later form the japanese communist party oh wow with, that is a, that's a lot of stuff happening there's there, there's so much there's so much beef uh <laughs> this is, this is Osagi. it's incredible it, there's there's so this, this, this like we haven't even gotten to the wild part of this relationship yet okay which is so so okay so she, she comes in contact with her partner or person who will become her partner uh 
Osagi Sakai, who is like dating another very famous Japanese narco feminist, who mm-hmm. uh, she stabs him in the neck over the fact that he's in multiple relationships at once. So this wasn't really a free love situation it. from her point <laughs> no, of view. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, this is the, this is the thing that keeps happening with free love in this period. It's like you gotta like you gotta lay down. You, uh-huh. you gotta make sure everyone's okay with everything. They sh- sure seem to <sighs> say the right things in theory, but then yeah. in practice, they sure yeah <laughs> sure do fall apart, huh? Isn't and, that uh, funny? Yeah, and this too divides the the Japanese anarchist. But did movement. she win? Did she succeed? Did she kill him, or did he survive the the next? No, he survived. Time? Okay. Yeah, I'm just. Yeah, I have. A, there's a special place in my heart for uh, slit <laughs> slit throats of patriarchal men. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Osaki Sakai is also very heavily involved in labor organizing, and mm-hmm. he he he's one of the guys who like turns anarchist labor into like a serious political force. Okay. Which is maybe it's like, good so that he, he survived. Yeah, like it's probably fine, net fine. good, but I, the, net good. I, all of the guys in this story like suck. Except, do I have an except here? What about the Korean guy who? Um... Oh yeah, yeah, we'll get to him. Yeah, he he's he's. I kind of like. I him. think he's actually fine. Yeah. yeah, I I think maybe the end of his story gets weird. Yeah, we'll 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 get to that in a second. Um, but yeah, so Osagi Sakai has like. He has, he has this like fusion of like egoism and syndicalism where like the individual ego will be liberated through like collective action. But the goal of the workers movement is not to just like end poverty. It's to like liberate the individual and give them self-development. And he's also this like incredibly fierce, like, like one of like his big thing is that like, he does not want intellectuals anywhere near the workers movement. <laughs> like, okay. Just does okay. Not. Just I'm like, into this. No, absolutely not. Yeah. And this is because like, again, he's been around for ages. Like mm-hmm. he becomes an anarchist around the time when, um, Kotoku does in like 1906. So mm-hmm. he, he's been like around it. He's one of the guys who survives the high treason incident because he was already in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. All right. And so he, he, he like, he's one of the people who like keeps the sort of flame of anarchism alive after like the repression of 1911. But unfortunately for him um, and for Ito Noe, they get caught up in the, the Kanto earthquake of 1923, which is this mm-hmm. like, this earthquake be- between Yokohama and Tokyo alone kills 200,000 people. It is like it is like it is one of the worst like natural disasters. It's it's really bad, and it immediately gets worse. The state wouldn't use a natural disaster to try and further its aims through extra legal means. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, I, I'm I'm going to start with, with one of the ways that the uh, genocide of Korean people in Japan at this time starts is. So there's a bunch of uh, Korean workers at a longshore union that's been organized by this militant, like, leftist union guy named Yamaguchi Sakai. And, and, okay, so, like, they're in this longshore union. There's this disaster. They start doing mutual aid. They start going out. They start taking care of survivors. They start giving people food. But, you know, they're, like, waving red flags and stuff. And the Japanese police lose their minds and are like, oh, my God, the the, the Koreans are doing socialism. Mm -hmm. And they just start killing them. And they th- there's this whole thing about like there's like, these rumors start that like koreans are raping japanese women and it turns into this thing about like looting and then like korean malcontents are supposed to be like overrunning police stations and the lynch mobs the, the lynch mobs are mostly targeting koreans but they're also targeting like if you're chinese if you're from ryoku islands like they're killing you too um they kill two thousand koreans in tokyo and another two thousand in yokohama and like 2,000 Koreans in Yokohama, that is half the Korean population of the city. Fuck. 
And these people die like horribly. Like, and it's not just like, so the, the police is a- are actively hunting them down. Like the entirety of Japanese society, like remembers that they really like killing people and they really like fighting. And like, I mean, you have people like taking their like ceremonial swords from like their ancestors who were in the major revolution. Like they're taking their katanas and going into the street and murdering people with them. Like people just like have fish hooks and they're just murdering people in the street. And this goes on for like, this goes on for days. And one of the things that happens in this is, um, well, okay. So the, the, one of the, the other thing that happens in this period is that the, the, the Japanese government just starts like arresting random leftists and executing them. Yeah. And that's what was supposed to happen to Noe, to Ito Noe and Osage Sakai, but they get arrested by a squad of military police led by, uh, Masahiko Amakasu, who just, he just murders them. Um, there's like conflicting stories of how this happened. Uh, there's, there's one version of it where like, he kills them and like their six-year-old nephew and throws their bodies on a well. There's another version of it where they get strangled and that he strangles them in prison. And this is like a huge outrage, but it's not a huge outrage because he murdered them. It's a huge outrage because he was supposed to wait for the trial. <laughs> I mean, and yeah. yeah and th- th- this is one of the things that like, this is, this is part of how like fascism comes to Japan is that like, he becomes a hero for the fascist, right? Like he goes to prison for 10 years, supposedly, but he only serves three and then he gets out, he becomes a hero, and then he becomes basically the head of, like, the 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 sort of fascist secret police mm-hmm. in the, like, Manchurian puppet state. But on the upside, he uh, when, when Japan loses the war, he kills himself, so... <laughs> what I, Yay? With the, the story I had heard was the, the thrown in the well story, and I remember it, it stuck with me so much because the first time I met uh, anarchists from Japan... They they gave me a zine and it was like Japanese anarchist martyrs, you know, like the martyrs of our movement or whatever. And I was like looking through it and there were all of these children. And it just like really emotionally affected me that I was like, oh, y'all's martyrs include all of these like, lit- not like like literal, like like six-year-olds and stuff because, yeah. you know, they, they came and, and killed not just the grown-up anarchists, but the baby anarchists or whatever as well. Um I know that must yeah. have happened lots of places, but it just it really stuck with me. So, I, whether it was true or not, the the story I heard was the story about the well, and it it stuck with me. Yeah, I mean, I, like the the level of repression in Japan, like it's it, it, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. That's not in a country that's literally in the middle of a civil war. Mm-hmm. Like they just, they just like murder people like constantly yeah and, and this is one of the other things like one of the things that starts the right wing like turn in japanese society is when is, is when the earthquake happens and the government is like like they're like the police are being like it's the koreans you need to go fight the koreans and so they do and like i mean yeah like wait they like blame the earthquake on the koreans yeah well so everything is there's this fire the fire kills like sixty thousand people uh-huh. like it it consumes they're like they're, they're, they're the urban core of uh uh what's the name of that city uh the urban core of yokohama just goes up in flames and like sixty thousand people burn to death and that's the brutal. government needs some explanation for it. yeah i mean it's horrible but it's like Japan, the government needs some explanation for it they're like oh we'll blame the koreans uh, and then okay. suddenly all of these people are just like like the whole of japanese society just goes into this total mobilization like kill mode thing and they just murder enormous numbers of people and th- this 
and like th- this has this enormous sort of like like cultural effect shif- shifting people back to the right and shifting people back towards militarism because now they've like you know like they've, they've tasted blood they've like they've gotten this sort of yeah. sense of it and it yeah it, it is brutal um and uh before we go we're gonna kill off uh one more anarchist wait we're killing uh, off the, the, the wrong Nile- team can we kill off the other team instead i unfortunately no <laughs> none of them die in this story it's the worst <laughs> all of the assassination attempts fail it's so what? sad right. <laughs> yeah i'm sorry that's all right i, I when, when i asked you to do this for? i forgot how depressing <laughs> this because I, I, I was i was remembering part two of this which is this like absolutely hilarious kind of pointless like ideological battle over like things that are kind of dumb and then i forgot about the first part of the story which is everyone gets executed <laughs> Yeah. So the, the last person who we're talking about who gets executed is, is is Fumiko Kaneko, who is Fumiko Kaneko. So she she she's a nihilist anarchist, but she's different from like everyone else we've talked about today so far because when she's a kid, she gets sent to live in Japanese occupied Korea, and so she goes there and she gets like horribly abused by her family, which leads to become like leads to her becoming a nihilist. But it means that like okay, so like a, like a lot of the anarchists like in japan talk a big game about anti like imperialism right and like they will do things like yeah like they they will go fight police to try to stop a war from happening but they don't really talk to people in korea very much and fumiko kaneko was like the exception to that mm-hmm. because you know she she lived there for a long time um and she she winds up marrying uh pak yol who is a, a very influential korean anarchist and they they do a bunch of organizing they did specifically like their their thing is they're trying to like get they're trying to like end the the, the japanese occupation of mm-hmm. korea and you know they're, they're doing great work and then unfortunately after the earthquake uh she and pak yol are and uh, uh stop me if you've heard this one before they are sentenced to death for a supposed plot to kill the emperor Wait, we no, yeah, we already did this part. You're just repeating. This yeah, yeah. Story. <laughs> they do it again. <laughs> this is the second time. <laughs> like they just keep doing this. And this one, it's unclear if there was actually a plot, and, it, and if there was a plot, it's unclear to what extent uh, Fumiko Kaneko was like involved with it. But while she's getting interrogated, she's like, "Oh yeah, no, like I hate the emperor. Uh, I was absolutely involved in a plot to kill him. Like I was making a bomb to kill him." Uh, uh, also, I'm an anarchist, and here's like an incredibly detailed sketch of like all of the oppression in Japanese society yeah. that I'm just gonna tell you, like the person who's like like the court examiner who's like, and and you know, th- there's there's an interesting thing that happens where she and Pak Yol are like are handed pardons as like the sort of like mercy of the emperor thing, and Pak Yol like takes it, but Hugo Kaneko like they hand her the paper and she tears it to shreds in front of them and it, it's so embarrassing that like the record of what happened is like sealed until after world war ii because <laughs> it was a big like um it was like a big media scandal all of the stuff with them being arrested right and i'm i'm basically yeah, yeah i don't actually know more but I, I watched a movie once there's a great movie about this called anarchist from colony this part of it yeah yeah and she yeah and like yeah it's, it's just like whole thing and like the, the, the government also kind of doesn't want to assassinate them because it looks really bad that i mean they've 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 picked they've just, they've arrested two random people who like have done nothing and they're just gonna kill them but from mechanicals like no like i i believe in the things that i believe in and i i will literally like tear up this pardon and die for it and so she tears up the pardon and so she goes to prison and she lives long enough to write like the greatest entry in in the genre of anarcho-feminist, uh, a Japanese anarcho-feminist prison memoirs, which is an entire genre. There's like multiple books because this it keeps happening and these people get arrested and sent to prison. And uh, it's called the Prison Memoirs of a Japanese Woman. It's great. 
Uh, everyone should go read it. It's it's also extremely depressing because her life sucks. But yeah, it's 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 good. Um, yeah, and so now having killed off the leading intellectuals of anarchism again for the second time in a generation. Uh, you would think that this would this would kill the movement. Like I think I think like ninety nine percent of movements, like if if you kill their leading intellectuals, like all of them, like twice in like eleven twelve years, like the movement collapses. Yeah, that. But at the very beginning, there was the guy who said, "Keep the intellectuals away from the labor organizing." Maybe yeah. he was right. Well, well, but this, but this, 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 yeah. The, the incredible thing about this is, no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't kill them. They, they, they keep going. Like, and they, they, they have, they have one last glorious, glorious, and absolutely baffling hurrah. Okay. Of like infighting, extremely weird Aww. and funny infighting. Okay. So yeah, that, that that's what we're going to be talking about uh, next episode. All right. Yeah. Is it time for the plug of the plug? Yes. Oh, oh, Margaret. You, yes. you have a new podcast. Do you I want do. to tell us about that? It's on this very network, Cool Zone Media. On this very network, I have my own podcast. Is it called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff? And does it. I believe so. Does it come out on May 2nd? And is it produced by the Webby Award winning Sophie Lichterman? <laughs> <laughs> uh, perhaps. And uh, do episodes drop every Monday and Wednesday? I think they do. <laughs> Uh, that is super, super exciting, and you can find that uh, wherever you get your podcasts, if I, I, if I remember correctly. I, anywhere you get them. Like, if there's a peddler on the corner who sells you podcasts, you're paying- Get, you, get, get your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get your podcast. Half off today. <laughs> two, two for one. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and uh-huh. where and where can people follow you on the interwebs? Uh. Well, for now, you can follow me on Twitter before the mass exodus uh, <laughs> at Magpie Killjoy. And you can follow me on Instagram, which we've all known for a very long time is owned by evil people. And that is Magpie. Kill- no, Margaret Killjoy, because I wasn't clever enough to get my own name in both places. I don't know why I'm explaining this to you, but you can follow me on social media and that's where I am. And I post pictures of my dog that keeps barking in the background while I'm trying to record this episode. <laughs> but, but if you, if you follow Margaret, you'll see her dog and you'll understand that it is worth it because he is handsome. Very nice. Dog. And agrees. <laughs> well, I'm very excited to start listening to CPW DCS. Just the best. <laughs> 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 Oh, is that the episode? Episode. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s, dance away with hip-hop beats, and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. I guess I'm starting this one. Uh, hi, welcome to It Can Happen Here. It's a show. If you're listening to this episode, you probably listened to the last one. So I hope you, so. You know, you know what it's about. Yeah, please do. Uh, don't start. With, I mean, I guess you could start with this one because this one is sort of wildly different from the last one. But this yeah, one we're rewriting it so they all survive. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I, no yes. one gets executed this episode. Yes, that is that is a win. That's a and win. the cosmists come. The Russian cosmists come and they resurrect at least Kaneko Fumiko. Um. The rest, give or take, whatever. Maybe the children could be resurrected. That's how I would prioritize it in that order. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that voice you're hearing is uh, Margaret Kiljoy, host of Cool Host Zone of Media's CPW DCS. Cool people who did cool stuff, a Cool Zone Media podcast that is launching its first episode on May 2nd. And episodes are every Monday and Wednesday. I did it. Okay. Woo. That's hey. true. All of the things are true, except the cosmos part. <laughs> yeah, the, the cosmists. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe they'll still pull it off. All right. As as of yet. So we're we're gonna go back a little bit. Um, we we ended last episode in 1923, 1924, with everyone sort of dead. Um. But the the reason that also didn't wipe out the anarch- the anarchist movement was that there's a, there's another sort of wing of it, and the other wing of it is 
in in 1918, the labor movement in Japan reemerges. And it reemerges because there's the war, like Japan mm-hmm. fights in World War One, and uh, there's just like mass inflation and deprivation. And so even though striking is like unbelievably illegal, people do it anyways, because the alternative is just starving to death. And so there's this reformist trade union that eventually becomes the Japanese Confederation of Labor that swells in numbers to about 30,000 people. And I should mention like 30,000 people is like, it doesn't sound like that big for a union. I think this is the biggest any union is going to get in this period. I think okay. this union might get slightly bigger than that. But like, yeah, most of the unions don't crack 20K because the, the, the size of the Japanese industrial working class isn't that big. And also the amount of repression is unbelievable. But, you know, ha- having 30,000 people in your union means that uh, your union is now the site of Japanese intra-left conflict which is wonderful. I mean, it um, only and, took know, like sort of three people for there the is actually like a, to fuck people up. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> there's like, you know, there's a period where everyone kind of gets along. Like, like all of, there was like everyone on the Japanese left knows each other. Like all, they're all dating each other. Like, and this is true. Like, you know, we've been talking about all the anarchists dating each other, but the anarchists and the communists are all dating each other. Like the reformists are also dating each other. Like they're all sort of like, everyone knows each other. And for like a bit, they're sort of able to get along, uh, but with 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 the the uh, the Japanese Confederation of uh, Labor, this lasts for like one year. And by 1921, the anarchists and the Bolsheviks have split over the question of the USSR. After the anarchists published like Emma Goldman mm-hmm. writing about how it's bad, actually, and suddenly these yeah. two factions are like. Yeah, these two factions are like fighting tooth and nail for control of like the entire left because like these 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 groups are like the anarchists and the communists are in every social movement. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're in they're in labor, they're in the feminist movement, they're in this movement that like we haven't really talked about but is going on in the background of all of this, which is the uh, Burakumin liberation movement. Um, the Burakumin are this like they're this like hereditary class. I'm pronouncing that extremely badly, and I I apologize. Um, but this hereditary class in like the old feudal system, which is like technically abolished in the late 1800s, but like Discrimination against them continues. It, it, it's it's very similar to like the like the untouchable uh, like the untouchables mm-hmm. in India, and so they they have this sort of movement, and the anarchists back it, and the communists yeah. like waffle on it because yeah, they're course. Bolsheviks. Mm-hmm. It takes them like a while before they're like, no, no, no. Nineteen twenty five, we're we're fully backing this now, and so yeah, you know that gets wrapped up in this this giant battle for the control of the left and. The battle for the control of the left leads to like one of history's most common alliances, which is Bolsheviks allying with reformists who like also favor like centralized control to fight the anarchists who don't want centralized control. Yeah, it's like, there there Damn are many new things. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> <laughs> yep, and, and, and in labor movement, this this plays out in this battle over like where power is supposed to be in a union confederation. So, you know, the question basically is, is it supposed to be in the Federation bureaucracy, like the people are like the, the sort of high level of the bureaucracy itself, or is it supposed to be in the unions who are like the part of this Federation? Mm-hmm. And and this has real consequences, you know, like in, in a lot of sort of centralized union federations, like the central union bureaucracy are the people who decide if you can strike or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is extremely useful to both reformist bureaucrats who want to make sure nobody goes on strike because they have their deal with the capitalists and they, they don't want a revolution to happen. And it's also very useful for the Bolsheviks who uh, want to make sure they can purge anyone who they don't like and also want to make sure the, the union movement is just like an extension of their politics. Mm-hmm. And so th- there's, there's this huge battle and it ends with basically like th- both the Bolsheviks and the reformists pull out of the union. Whoa, so the anarchists win. 
Well, sort of. Well, they, they, the, the, it's a Pyrrhic the, victory. There's like nothing left. Yeah. Well, it's not that there's nothing left. So like 20,000 members go with the reformists, like 12,000 go with the Bolsheviks, and about 8,000 go with the anarchists. Oh. Okay. So, the so it's win. not the best, but they, they, they rebuild. And, and into this fray steps uh, arguably Japan's greatest anarchist theorist of, of this period, Hata Shuzo. And uh, this guy is a character. Like, he's 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 barely known in Japan. I mean, th- 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 there was a sort of like renaissance in, in Hadashuzo scholarship when this one guy named John Krupp wrote this book called Hadashuzo, uh, Hadashuzo and Pure Anarchism in Interwar Japan, which is a mouthful of a title. But I'm just going to keep plugging this because like this is the book that made me an anarchist. Like this is like I checked this book out from a library uh-huh. and I read it and I was like, oh, my God, I'm an anarchist now. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, Fuck yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. He has, he has like a okay. Shuzo has a wild story. Um, he, he's born in he's born in Japan in December eighth, eighteen eighty six, and he sort of like bounces around like different manual labor jobs in Tokyo. And like at one point, he 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 wants to be like a uh, he, he tries to be like I don't know if it's a long short one. My like he wants to be like a sailor. Mm-hmm. So he gets on a boat and he's going to be a sailor. And then he after like one sail ride to Taiwan, he immediately decides he doesn't want to be a sailor anymore. So he just gets off the boat and leaves and doesn't come back. I feel like that's what I would do if I decided. I was oh be yeah, a yeah. <laughs> like that job, especially in like the, the nineteen like twenties. That job seems awful. Yeah, you're like, Are oh, you I want adventure, and then you're like, oh, adventure means bad things happen. Yeah, okay, no. Good. <laughs> it's like I mean, I, 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 I guess I understand why all these people are anarchists because like that is a terrible job. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Shuzo winds up sort of just like wandering around Taiwan. And one of the things that happens when he's wandering around Taiwan, by the way, is a, a Japanese colony at this point. Um, okay. And while he's wandering around Taiwan, he becomes a Christian and he like goes to school okay. as like a theologian, but then he drops out, but then he somehow still becomes a pastor because I, I don't know. This guy's career is wild. Uh, no, Shizo is not like a noble pastor. Uh, he rapidly starts pissing off like everyone around him because he's like, Every, all of his sermons are just him antagonizing rich people and preaching this like very very left wing version of the gospel. Yeah, so he uh, like read just... the Bible. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. There's this Weird. great quote from uh, uh, Hadashizu and Pure Anarchism in Interwar Japan about his time as a pastor from like someone who was there. It was uh, Pastor Hada's sermons were superb, so much so that I thought it was a shame that more people were not there to hear them. It was like the Bible talking in the spirit of pure socialism. And one of my friends admired Pastor Hada so much that he asked him to celebrate his marriage. Yeah. And you know, this, like, this so does not make... priest the, is going around. Yeah, yeah. See, well, it's funny because so he, so he starts, like, as a Christian, right? But, like, mm-hmm. he just, like, progressively keeps getting more and more left-wing and, and keeps realizing that, like, okay, so there's the kingdom of God in heaven right but like what if we did that here mm-hmm. and and like as he's getting like as he's pissing off more of the church um and as like their their, their infighting gets bigger he's becoming just more and more of an anarchist and mm-hmm. by the end he just like gets he gets booted out by his church and he's just like okay i'm an anarchist propagandist now and so in 1924 he just like leaves yeah. and he's like well i'm an anarchist now okay um okay. And Shuzo becomes what's known as a pure anarchist. And this is something that is like entirely unique to Japan that like there, there's nothing there's this doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, and, and this is different than like, like basically every other anarchist theorist and movement in Japan until this point has been like something you can find parallels with in other anarchist movements around the globe. Like there are nihilists in lots of countries. There's egoists everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like there's syndicalists literally in every country that's ever existed. And they mostly sort of believe the same things. Um, you know, and you, you mm-hmm. get some like, 
like Osu Sakai's like combination of egoism and syndicalism is like it's cool, yeah, but like which it's, is, I like that idea, but yeah, yeah, it's a good idea, but it's also not like it's like he's, he's not he's not like the, he's not the first person to ever do this, mm-hmm. right? And like the Japanese syndicalist movement is is built in the mold of like the the French syndicalists in the CGT, which is this big union. Uh, actually, they're still around today. They're so in like the very early 1900s, they were there there were a sort of anarcho syndicalist union. In like like 1906, mm-hmm. they have this famous charter that's like anarchist. But then they go reformist and they like they vote for World War World War One. And now they're famous for uh, there have been like 12 things that probably could have been a revolution in France if the CGT had ever a single time went to the barricades, and they never do. <laughs> Like just never, uh-huh. ever. That's like their whole thing. Like, like they, they sat out May '68. Like that's the, impressive. The, the, yeah, this 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 is a trident it, union. Yeah, yeah, and they sat out May '68. It's like yeah. it's incredible. But you know, it's the, but you know, in in like 1906, right? The Japanese are looking at the, like Sinico's looking at this and like, mm-hmm. oh my god, this, this 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 union has like millions of people in it. Like it's mm-hmm. enormous. It's a Sinico's union. Yeah, which is cool and at so, the time. Yeah, yeah, and like you know, they 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 the the Japanese anarchists do is sort of their standard syndicalist things like they're, they're building up democratic unions they're like working towards a general strike that sees the means of production they're like fighting for a society where production is run by workers themselves blah 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 mm-hmm. blah I, I shouldn't blah 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 that's actually it's it's cool it's fine but uh pure anarchism is not that i'm dying to know what pure anarchism is this I'm, new anarchism just dropped i'm excited <laughs> yeah, I mean, years it, ago it, it's it, it's kind of a it's, it's a version of anarcho communism but like what if you like really, really rigorously applied anarcho-communism, and and this this is a thing that doesn't exist anywhere else because everywhere like in the West and in Latin America, like syndicalism and anarcho and anarcho-communism just like fuse, yeah, to the point where like they're not really they're like but there's not really they're not really a separate tendency like nobody's written anarcho-communist theory in like a hundred years, okay. like it, it, like they they, they they you know they've basically ceased to be separate tendencies, but in Japan. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The syndicalists and the ANCOMs like fight it out to the death. And it, this this produces pure anarchism and it rules. And we're gonna talk about what it is because it's both wonderful and incredibly silly at the uh-huh. same time. So okay, so to, to understand what they're arguing about, because this is this is this this causes like a, a huge fracture in the anarchist mm-hmm. movements. Um I think we need to sort of like go into like the vulgar Marxist conception of class structure that's kind of shared by the syndicalists. Okay. So okay, okay. So you're 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 okay. The, the, the important thing about this is that like this doesn't work in Japan. Like the, the vulgar theory of like Marxist class structure, right? Is that like okay? So you're supposed to have the great industrial proletariat. Mm-hmm. Like if that's supposed to become a majority of the population, it's supposed to be unified and organized by like the discipline of the factory system, and the entire world is supposed to reduce to two classes, like the the, bourge- the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Like one class of people who have nothing to sell but their labor, one class of people who exist purely to like extract wealth from people yeah. because like, you, you entirely support this by owning things. And, you know, eventually these are supposed to like, if you, if you read your communist manifesto, eventually these two classes are supposed to like meet themselves in like a final conflict where the proletariat defeats. Mm-hmm. The it's called Ragnarok. Yeah. Yeah. Ragnarok. Yeah. And, you know, the proletariat defeats them and then they, they abolish the, the conditions of their own existence as a class and you get stateless, classless, moneyless society. It's like a free association of workers. And this is what communism is. And uh, famously, this never happened. Uh-huh. Um, what? Yeah. And, and what about the U.S. For this. What about the immortal science? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, well, the, the, immortal, the immortal science. We're, we're, yeah. This, this, is the, so this is the problem with the immortal science is that one, instead of unifying the industrial proletariat, capitalism like divides it and just sort of like, like literally spatially like 
kicks them into suburbs and you get, mm-hmm. you get this sort of like the system where instead of like unifying everyone into one class, everyone is now this like completely alienated, like boomer living in a suburb, even if they still work in a factory. And the other problem is that uh, there's never just two classes. And this what? is the problem that like, yeah, well, yeah. All, all the other ones are our enemies. <laughs> yeah. That's weird too. I mean, you know, but this is the real problem, right? Because like, the, like the Marx is running into this in Russia where it's like, okay, so we, we did our thing. We did our urban proletariat revolution, but like there's all these peasants. And they don't like us because we keep taking their grain at gunpoint. And but but you know so you have you have this one problem. But and, and famous the other thing way is to like, get popular. Yeah, it goes great, right? Not nothing bad ever happens. They don't famously have to kill enormous numbers of these people. But then, like you know, there's something weird happens, which is in China, uh, Stalin managed to get like the entire urb, like the entire urban Chinese working class, like militant working class, killed. And so Mao has to like make a revolution with peasants. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, peasants become the sort of like, you know, this, this sort of like, this, this is what the actual revolutionary subject of communism winds up being like from like China to Colombia is these peasants, but like, you know, okay. So you, your theory of the industrial proletariat is already down the toilet. And this is what Shuzo is reacting to. Like he looks at Japanese society mm-hmm. and there's like five people who do wage labor. Uh, mostly there's this enormous, like, like four, I think it's like 14 million people who are tenant farmers mm-hmm. who are like trying to support their families on these like tiny plots of rented land. But, you know, and like Senator Marx's theory is like, well, okay, these people will inevitably be absorbed into capitalism, right? By they'll be driven by competition or whatever sure, into, into yeah. the market. But like, they're not, it's not happening. They're just, yeah. they're sitting there and they're still just really poor and paying their landlords. Well, and just have to be more patient. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, you, you just got to wait for all of Japan to be in, like annihilated to be saved by, by the second war. coming of yeah, uh huh, yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 going great, but and there's also like there, there's all these other like classes too. Like there's there's these classes of like there's these like petty traders, for example, or like they're like low level go- like really low level government officials, mm-hmm. like like you know you're like like a clerk, for mm-hmm. example, who just don't fit into this sort of class schema at all. Like if 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 Marxism thinks about like like small like. I don't know people who like cut wood and then go into a town and sell it. Like they're like, well, these these people are petite bourgeois. Like they're yeah. reactionaries. Blah blah blah. And there's this whole history of like anarchists organizing people like this who Marxists just sort of like steer at. Like, like Bolivia has this where like anarchists organize these like uh, these indigenous like peasant, like they're not really peasant. These indigenous artisans whose thing is mm-hmm. like they, they go to a market and they sell their craft. And the Marxists were just like, oh, why do we care about these people? Like why? Yeah, they're yeah. not workers. And it always seems like the better, I don't know, whenever I was like presented with the basic analysis of like, okay, we've got the proletariat who have terrible lives in factories, and then you have the lumpen proletariat who refuse that kind of work and are like beggars and thieves and uh, people doing work outside of the traditional system or whatever. And then you have the petty bourgeoisie who are like, you know, own stores or artisans or whatever. And then you have the bourgeoisie over it. And it's just always funny to me because I look at, I'm like, well, clearly the only ones that would be worth being would be lump and proletariat or petty bourgeoisie. Yeah. <laughs> like they're the only ones who get to have any fun. <laughs> like, Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think like, like th- this is the problem that, that Shuzo sees. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read part of um, uh, Krupp's book about his solution to this because I think it's really interesting. Um, Given the failure of the available methods of class analysis to capture the subtleties of Japan's social structure, Hada developed the notion of the propertyless masses as an alternative concept to the proletariat. The, the propertyless masses was a wide-ranging term which encompassed tenant farmers, small traders, petty officials, artisans, and even wage laborers when they are prepared to forsake their preoccupation with narrowly defending advantages uh, that accompany their urban lifestyle and were ready to throw in their lot with the other oppressed strata. 
Yeah, it makes sense. That's just the 99%. You know, it's the like, or it's just the haves and have nots. It's like, okay. Well, well so- it, it's it's kind of, but but okay, th- okay. Th- there's, there's a crucial difference here, which okay. is that like, okay, so the, 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 the other, like the, the really big thing about the pure anarchists is that they don't believe in class struggle. Okay. And the reason why they don't believe in class struggle is that they think that Okay, so they they look at the history of the union movement, right? And it's like, okay, so has the union movement ended capitalism? And it's like, no. So like, mm-hmm. okay, what what does it actually do? And the answer is, it gets people slightly more money under capitalism, which is nice too. Yeah, which which is nice, but it's also like Shuzo like adopts this too. There's another Japanese anarchist who who has this metaphor. It's like he he compares it to like people fighting inside of like a, a bandit gang. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, so if you have you have like fight like the the bosses of the bandit gang are obviously exploiting like the the, the lower level people in the bandit gang, mm-hmm. but you know if even even if the even if the the, the low level people in this bandit gang like take over, they're not actually going to stop being a bandit gang, right? It's just that the the the, the, the distribution of where the bandit gang wealth is going changes, mm-hmm. and this is a big thing for 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 the the pure anarchists because the pure anarchists. Are you know they're, they're looking at the the industrial working class and like this is tiny and they're they're all exploiting the countryside, mm-hmm. and so because of that like they 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 look at this they they look at the the union movement and they they look at it at like class struggle like classical TM like class struggle, and they're like well this doesn't cause a revolution all this does is just like sort of reorients like who's in power inside of uh well, that's what the Bolsheviks did right. Yeah, but but it's it's not just what the Bol- so they apply this to the Bolsheviks, but like it's also like there is analysis of what a union is. Is that your like class struggle is just defending your position under capitalism, okay. but you're also fighting very specifically narrowly for your class, right? So if you're like mm-hmm. a factory worker, right, you're fighting for you and the other factory workers. You're not fighting for like I don't know like a tenant farmer. You're not you're not even fighting from like for like the guy down the street who bakes bread. It's like you're you know it, it, the, these these things that are like that are. But they like instruments of class struggles, like your mm-hmm. workers' council, your unions, your Soviets. Like they don't actually get rid of class. It's just now another class has power, and it doesn't matter if it's sort of like. And this is what they're arguing: is like it doesn't matter if it's like democratic. It doesn't matter if it's like, you know, like it, it, there, there, there's no difference in how the actual eventually the the class dynamics will play out. It doesn't matter if it's like, you know, like Lenin making like Stalin making himself dictator, or you have a bunch of democratic like Soviets. Because they're both still instruments of class power, they're both sort of just going to reproduce this this whole system. Okay. And yeah, and so they 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 have this thing that they 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 counterpose, which is like class struggle is just about like stuff that's happening inside the system, but that's different from revolution, which is like destroying this the system entirely. And this is where you get into his stuff about the division of labor, which is I think is really interesting because it I I, I think. This this sphere of pure anarchism got to a bunch of critiques of stuff that people have gotten to now, but they got to it in like 1920. Where okay, so Shuzo's like one of his big things is that like the division of labor is inherently exploitative because it like it destroys sort of rural communal living and it replaces it with the centralization of expertise and the centralization of power. And he also thinks that like science is like a, a capitalist engine that's used to like create the the, the division of labor, mm-hmm. and then it's used to create like mechanization, and it's used to create a, like labor exploitation. Yeah, this that sounds like modern. A lot of like stuff that I read more modern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except again, this is like they're doing this in like like nineteen twenty seven. Yeah, but you know really what else is a capitalist engine of exploitation? Products and services. The podcast industrial <laughs> complex. It's true. 
And we're back with uh, more things that are exploitative. <laughs> and uh, the, yeah. the, the well, no the revolution the, theoretically, theoretically not. Well, exploitative. yes, yes, but we 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 have we have to get through we have to get through the last exploitative thing, which okay. is the thing I, I talked a bit about this earlier. But like the pure anarchists argue that like cities inherently are this concentration of wealth and resources and power, and so wow. like farmers and workers need to work together to destroy all forms of power, including cities. Whoa. And this sounds a lot like primitivism. <laughs> which, yeah, it does. Although, yeah. you know, they wouldn't necessarily be like repping the farmers. This, I think I think primitivism might be the wrong term, but it's definitely yeah. a lot of like the anti-tech stuff. Yeah. Like, well, like, it's it's interesting. They, they, okay, so they have they have like they, they they thread this needle where so like th- there are people in this period who want to just go back to pure rural agrarianism and don't want there to be technology. Mm-hmm. And the pure anarchists are like, no, we still want technology, but we don't want the division of labor. So they're like, we and, like our reaping machines, so we don't have to work as much when we're farming. We just don't want everyone to live in apartments. Yeah, I mean, it, even the reaping machine, I don't know. Like, I, It's kind of unclear to me how this is exactly supposed to work, because like, we'll, we'll get into this. I guess we can just get into this now, which is that like, okay, so... They really don't like the division of labor because they think the division of labor, like, well, okay, they have, they have, like, there's like three critiques of it. One is that, like, when you have the division of labor, labor becomes, like, mechanized and industrialized. And when that happens, mm-hmm. um, labor, beca- like, is gets reduced to just, like, a cog you put in a machine. Mm-hmm. And they, they see this as, like, this is, like, an inherent, like, thing that happens with, with labor specialization is you just end up, like, being a person who makes one repetitive move in a factory over and over again, like you're not free because of this. Um, and they also argue that like specialization means that people only care about like the labor that they do. And so th- this gives you like an identity that, that divides workers from one sector. Like say if you're, if you're, you know, you're like a coal miner, right? Mm-hmm. Your daily experience is so utterly different than a baker and it's not just like your experience. It's like it's like your knowledge is different. The other person is not gonna like the baker is not gonna understand what you're doing. Um, and you I know, keep and wanting the, the, to argue against this political position that I know is a hundred years I, old. I keep trying to be like, hard. no, yeah, no, no, that misunderstands the nature of specialization at all. You know, but then I'm like, all oh, right, I I can't these go back and convince dead. these people. They're all dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I I think like I I think okay. This is I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, put on my 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 marks my like weird left com marks noise and go oh it's a critique not a platform okay which is not they they actually want it as a platform but like i think right it's, it would have been a great critique and not a very good platform yeah their, their platform yeah i, I mean i, th- I think there's there's there interesting elements of it like they, they mm-hmm. have this argument that like okay so if, if you have your like your your syndicalist like society mm-hmm. right where okay so you you, you have a bunch of like you have a bunch of like coal miners. You have a bunch of people who like make pots and pans, mm-hmm. but you you need to coordinate your labor, okay? Because you, because you 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 have like specialization. You have branches of labor, and their argument is that okay. So well, the, the, the syndicalist way you do this is you have coordinating committees, right? You you like elect a person, you like send them to a coordinating council, and the coordinating council like coordinates stuff. Okay. And Chuzo's like, well, that's just going to turn. Chuzo's like thing is like that's just going to turn into a state. Like you're just going to create a permanent class, even even if you rotate people, you're 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 creating an administrative body that's going to like rebuild the state again. Uh, and yeah, I like okay, like I'm I, making I don't, this like it, shrugging gesture that the audience can't. I'm like, ah, yeah, I got you know. 
Yeah, I, I don't. Okay, so like, I don't think he's right about like most of this. Like, I think he's sort of wrong about a, like almost all of it. The, the the thing the thing that stuck with me though when I read this is like his specific critique of syndicalism, which mm-hmm. is that it maintains like the structure of the old world. Mm-hmm. Because if, if if you're a syndicalist and your your society is based on unions running their workplaces, then you you've maintained the division of labor, but you've also maintained like the basic like geographic, physical, technological, and organizational structure of capitalism. Sure. Like all, all of the like all of that stuff is still in the same place and you're still sort of like going there to do your job. And and I think there there is an interesting sort of like like I I think there was a genuinely interesting critique there of yeah, yeah like how 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 do you make sure that you aren't just sort of reproducing that stuff? And like, like, I mean, I don't know, like, the the critique of why would you want to build a society, like, structured along the lines of production? Like, mm-hmm. why like why do you want to structure your society around work? Like, that's awful. I, I like that about the pure anarchists where they were kind of like, let's, let's, let's throw away the Marxist shit for a minute and, like, just actually, like, figure out what we want. And, like, I, I like that about it. I, but I, I, I dislike the idea of, like, well, it's, it's. It would be my problem with syndicalism, and most of the syndicalists I met believe in syndicalism as a, a, a method and not a end result. Yeah. Right? Um, it's a way of building workers' power, not a, a way to create a society. But but if syndicalists were like everyone must wake up and go to their work job and then make eight widgets, but it's collectively determined which widgets that you make. Right? Like fuck that. But also yeah. if it was like everyone goes and wakes up and goes to their collective farm, and maybe we use reaping machines and maybe we don't, and it's just like. I get so unexcited by it's like one of the reasons that like a lot of the like nitpicky branches of anarchism don't they interest me, but I don't like subscribe to any of them is because I'm like, well, what if some people like this shit and some people like this shit? Like, in, you know, yeah. maybe there could be fucking different. Imagine that we could have a plurality of uh, economic models systems, but, you know, whatever. Um, I'm now well, arguing with dead people who I no, probably would have like, gotten no, along is, with in real life. This is interesting. Like, well, I don't know because these guys like they they have like the Maoist thing going on, where like mm-hmm. they will like attack other leftist groups who like don't like uh, follow their line. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is where this whole thing gets wild because so, so one of the other things is like the. The, the 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 pure anarchists are like completely convinced that syndicalism is like a sort of like well they think it's it's just like a, it's not an anarchist thing it's just like a, a tendency of the labor movement and they also think that like it's basically like a bastardized form of marxism because they're not like, like entirely wrong about either of those things but yeah, it's, just, except, it's different at different places and times yeah but it's like the, the thing the thing that they have about it like because they're they're completely convinced that syndicalism will inevitably just like turn into like soviet communism it's like yeah it's it's incredibly silly um but like like this you know i mean like on the one hand like they they are kind of inventing a lot of the sort of like like they're, they're inventing a lot of the sort of like some okay some bad arguments about uh uh like specialization and stuff like and like mm-hmm. some anti-work stuff too that like is going to be around later yeah they're also inventing a lot of stuff that's like <sighs> and you know initially this kind of like new theory doesn't have this doesn't have an enormous effect um in in 1920 in 1926 the 
the, the Federation of Black Youth or Kokuran has its first public meeting and they, they, they have a bunch of cool slogans. Their, their slogans rule. They have uh, the emancipation of workers must be carried out by the workers themselves. We insist mm-hmm. on libertarian federation. Destroy the political movement. Get rid of, <laughs> uh, reject the proletarian party. Get rid of professional activists. Yes. Down yeah. with all oppressive laws and ordinances. That, that is an entirely based platform. <laughs> yeah, all it's right. sweet. All right, it's it's good. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing is, despite the fact that it's called the Federation of Black Youth, this is like not a youth. I mean, I mean, there's like youth in it, but like it's it's this thing's backed by like remember those those printers unions that I was talking about last episode that Osagi yeah. Sakai had like set up. So they're all heavily involved in this, um, and they do a bunch of cool labor stuff. Like they they get involved in like uh, there's a bunch of tram worker strikes they get involved in. They they're in this. Uh, the, the Japanese musical instrument company strike, which is like, there's like over a thousand Whoa. people on strike for like over a hundred days. And there's, there's this great split where like, so the leadership of the union is Bolshevik, but like a bunch of the, like a bunch of the, the, the ordinary people in the union are anarchists. And so you have the, there's, there's like, there's this fun tension going around they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the stuff. Um, and then the anarchist form, um, Zengoku Jiren, which is the the All Japanese Libertarian Federation of Labor Unions, which is a it's a federation of twenty five unions. Wait, these are the pure and, anarchists ha- that you're talking about that are doing all this? Oh, so I, sorry. At, at this point, they they haven't split yet. Oh, okay. Because uh, I was like, like this yeah, sounds this is, like all the stuff that they said that they don't want to do. Yeah. Well, this is okay, the other the other wild thing about this is that like okay, so the the entirety of like of like pure anarchist theory right is about how like unions don't do revolutions and that class struggle, but like mm-hmm. they still do strikes. Okay. Like they still do all the normal stuff. It's kind of wild. Okay, I kind of like that. Yeah, and you know, and like, and this that that's sort of how they're able to get along in this early period. Mm-hmm. And these unions, like, okay, so there's like a lot of printers unions in this because the printers unions are just really anarchist. But there's there's mm-hmm. like a, there's a tenant farmers union. There's a bunch of like rubber unions, and it grows to like fifteen thousand workers almost immediately. And yeah, they're they're doing a lot of cool stuff. Like they they have they have these huge demonstrations in support of Sacco and Vanzetti. I mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. is killing for being anarchists and also Italians, which is like, yeah, the one time anti-Italian racism was real. <laughs> and a <laughs> hundred years ago, shit was real different than it is now, and it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and for 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 one year, this like this works great. Uh, you know, like the the. Yeah, the, the union's up to like I think they get up to like twenty thousand, thirty thousand members. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it gets pretty big. But then nineteen twenty seven, uh, intense conflict between the syndicalists and the anarcho and the the pure anarchists break out, and it, uh, this gets so bad so fast that like the International Working Man's Association, which is the like like the giant international like federation of syndicalist movements, mm-hmm. like sends them a letter that are like, hey, uh, syndicalists and anarcho communists get along every literally everywhere else on earth. They're chill. Can you guys like. <laughs> chill and uh the, the, the anarcho-communists in kokuren uh their response is uh we are fighting quote the betrayers opportunists and union imperialists in zengoku jiren's uh, ranks <laughs> it's, no. it's amazing uh-huh. um this is why we so can't have I, nice things yo it's great it gets better it gets better so it gets so better I, as I, we I, always lose uh, yeah because but, you shit. know okay uh-huh. look in, in, in the 1928 conference uh, so uh 
Sengoku Jiren, which is the the the, the Union Federation, like they they have the, they have this conference, they have the yearly conference in 1928, and there's just like giant battle over like what the organization's platform is going to be, a thing that doesn't matter at all, mm-hmm. except it's a proxy ideological fight, and uh, <laughs> both sides just start screaming at each other. And I'm I'm gonna read this description from Harushiso and Piranicas in Interwar Japan. Uh huh. Kokura and members barricaded the uh, uh, barracked the anar- the anarchist syndicalists, jeering and catcalling them. And the proceedings degenerated to the level where it was almost impossible to hear the speeches. Eventually, the anarcho-syndicalists decided they had had enough. Unflurling their black flags, they walked out of the hall to a chorus of taunts such as believers, blind believers in central authority, Bolsheviks and betrayers. Oh my god, get over yourself. Oh my god. No, okay. To to be fair to the pure anarchist, uh, mm-hmm. one of so okay, a, a bunch of the the syndicalist unions start leaving, mm-hmm. and uh, one of them does actually join the Bolsheviks, but like all the other ones don't because they're not. And you get this pure. There's like they have yeah. like the, the syndicalists and the the pure anarchists have dueling magazines. Uh, there's one called Black Flag, and there's one called Black Battle, and like so <laughs> Kokoren, which is like the, the youth movement thing. Like the syndicalists and the anarchists are still in it together, and they like. They start just like fighting each other in the street when they run into each other because the uh, wow. the this is like, more depressing than everyone getting murdered after the earthquake. Not the it's, genocide it's part, but the anarchist killing part. Yeah, well, I mean, the, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's oh my it's god, like uh-huh. it's incredible, you know. And like, yeah, they, they. What's interesting about this though is that like the anarcho communists, like when the union splits, like almost all of the people stay with the anarcho communists. Even mm-hmm. though the anarcho communists are like explicitly saying we're not fighting for like wage increases, uh, we're just fighting for revolution, which and, is fine. I'm all right with that. Yeah, well, I, but there's interesting stuff too, where it's like like they're also so b- b- because they have this thing that's like okay, so the, the urban workers are like exploiting the why oh, well, okay. The line about it's complicated because it's like they, they they think the urban workers are exploiting the countryside, but they also don't think that the solution to it is to just like turn it the other way around. They think that like the workers and the tenant farmers just work together to like right. make the oppression go away. That seems which is fair. like a reasonable stance on it. Yeah, but it means that you know they're interested in like they're interested in the rural, the rural movement in a way that like the other Japanese left movements aren't. Mm-hmm. But uh, unfortunately, you know, okay, th- th- there's a big debate as to whether this split like actually like. Like how big a role this split had in the collapse of anarchism, because mm-hmm. like by 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 like by like 1931, like the fascists have just straight up taken over Manchuria. Like th- things have gotten so fascist that it's like it's unclear whether the split mattered at all. Yeah, um, yeah, but th- you know th- this, th- they they run into this problem where like like Kokuren like the state really hates them mm-hmm. and they all, a bunch of them get arrested and they, you know, they respond to being arrested by like getting more militant, but then that just, you know, that fuels the cycle of them getting arrested for, and people just leave because they're like, well, okay, if I'm in this organization, like we're all just going to like get shot. I mean, that's the clandestinity and, spiral. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's just a real problem. And like Hadashizu himself becomes just like incredibly depressed by the suppression of the movement. And by 1932, he just leaves like mm-hmm. he's just out. He like renounces anarchism. He uh, abuses his wife because this is the story of a bunch of guys who sucked. Ugh. And then he drinks himself to death. Stabbers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess okay. He he did it to him. He yeah. He drinks himself he, to death. He got so, it done on his own. Yeah, and you know, so he 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 dies and he like kills himself. Well, I, I don't think he was doing it on purpose, but he just 
yeah, he yeah, dies yeah. from drinking too much in 1934. And that year, actually, the anarcho-communists, anarcho-syndicalists, like, get back together. But it doesn't matter because by this point, the fascists are just sort of in power. And yeah, the anarchists, they, they, do, they do one last rural uprising. Okay. And they, they fight a lot of cops and then all of them get arrested and anarchism just sort of dies until the end of World War II. Okay. And yeah, it's, you know, okay. Anarchism does reemerge after the war. But that's like that. That's a whole nother story in, entirely. Uh, what what I will say about it is, uh, if, if you see those those construction hats from like the nineteen sixty eight protests, and you see one that's just all black, it doesn't have like a name written on it. Like those are the anarchists. Cool. They're still around. Cool. Um, and you know, anarchism in Japan like survives to this day. Uh, there's there, there's a book called The Manual for a Worldwide for a Worldwide Manuke Revolt that like one day I swear to God I'm actually going to read mm-hmm. but it is uh, really big in China well okay I say really big in China it's very influential in a very small subcultural anarchist scene mm-hmm. in China but I'm talking about them because it heavily influenced uh, like the, the the people who wrote the Lying Flat Manifesto um, were like were very he- heavily influenced by this stuff what's so, the Lying Flat you know, Manifesto? Oh, okay, okay. So we we did an episode about this a while back, but lying flat was this thing in China. I guess still going on, but like people were just like, it, it's kind of it was kind of the version of anti work, mm-hmm. where a bunch of people like discovered Diogenes and were like, what if I just didn't work? All like, right. what if I just like lived on like, I worked like one day a month and then lived on like nothing, so I didn't have to work. Or what if I just quit? What if I just like stop doing all of this capitalist stuff? And what if I like stop having to deal with this patriarchy? And what if I just like. You know, it, 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 yeah, it, it takes it cool. kind pretty, of like, yeah, yeah, based. they're, they're, they're great. They, lots of fun Diogenes quotes, lots of like the, the, the manifesto they released is like very, it's like very anarchist. And yeah, like that whole thing. And that, and that was like, like this, this is a big enough social movement that like, like Xi Jinping like mentioned it in a speech. Okay. And so, yeah, like Japanese anarchism still has like influence big, it, to this it day. Was like yeah, a it was a big problem deal. for them. They were like yeah. kind of kind of concerned about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like the, 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 the same way a whole bunch of like oligarchs got concerned about the anti-work stuff. You saw mm-hmm. like anti-work hit pieces in the past like six months. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, yeah. it's like s- similar things being like, well, this better not catch on more because that could really suck for us. <laughs> That's as optimistic of a note as you could possibly get out of the story, which is that uh, they're still around and they still influence things that matter. So, yeah. and hopefully they don't uh, fight each other more than the state. Yeah, don't don't do that. Like I, like yes, I I, I, I guess I will make my controversial. Sometimes it's okay to stab an abuser into the throat stance, but also don't purge all your syndicalists because on the accusation of bolshevism hot take don't purge all your syndicalists yeah <laughs> yeah like... don't, don't systematize <laughs> violence like that you know you're like this individual yeah. guy just did this thing and i'm real upset that he just did it to me and there's like a throat i'm not actually making an actual advocacy i'm talking about how sometimes when that has happened in history that seemed kind of cool but yeah not the not the systemic kick out all the people who have this minor i mean it's really yeah. funny to me because i'm like i'm like huge anti-infighting then people are like don't you spend all your time fighting tankies on the internet and i'm like they want to make a state that's different yeah <laughs> they believe that they everyone should be thrown in jail that is a different thing <laughs> um uh, also i don't like 
you gotta manage the polycule drama. Like you gotta yeah. manage. It's yeah. gotta be kept under control. <laughs> like you, you cannot allow your entire scene to be factionalized over rival polycules. And, and anarchists control your polycule drama. Quotation. <laughs> no, uh, parenthesis. Impossible. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why you just need more. No, maybe it's not true. It's like you need more multi generational anarchists because <laughs> I think people in their forties give less of a shit about a lot of the drama. But then I'm like. <laughs> Maybe that's not true. Maybe people in their forties would give just as much of a shit about all the drama. <laughs> uh, anarchism, wonderful idea. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a it's bit. good. And speaking of wonderful ideas, uh, it, it is time t- for us t- t- to do the plugs. Um, it, it, first, uh, I just want to plug Jamie Loftus's new Cool Zone Media podcast, Ghost Church by Jamie Loftus. Uh, by the time this drops, episode one will be out, and episode two will be dropping on... Forthwith, the next Monday, I believe. Yes, exactly. And uh, we also have another podcast on Cool Zone Media with uh, one Margaret Killjoy called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. Margaret, you want to tell us about that? Oh, shit, should I start working on that? I'll get it done by Monday. Oh, okay, cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a new podcast called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, which is... Uh, about cool people who um did did cool stuff and you might like it if you like stories about people who um i can't say cool stuff again i'll have to use come up with more synonyms really it's just all a competition to see how many synonyms for cool i can come up with without using the word based because i feel like i'm too old to use the word based without really this is what you are here for so i'm much more eloquent on my podcast which you can catch every monday and wednesday uh, wherever you get your podcasts, probably wherever you got this podcast is where you can find it. And the trailer is out now. So you can go and you can listen to the trailer where I talk about some anarchist bank robbers who broke out of prison, because why would you be in prison when you could be outside of prison, which is generally the preferable position to be in, uh, with the yeah. exception of like every now and then, like people break out out of jail by like someone goes to jail on purpose, but they have like hacksaw blades in their shoes and shit. That would be cool, too. Um, so more breaking your friends out of jail and less chasing them out of the room, jeering at them is my <laughs> general rule. <laughs> I hate to make rules, but if I were to make one, it would be that. And you can hear me talk about those kinds of stories on the podcast. Yay. Well, thank you, thank, thank you so much for joining joining us today uh, for, for Chris to talk about... Uh, the wonderful, wonderful history of uh, Japanese anarchism <laughs> and the many, uh, the many deaths that are oh. associated in uh, those poor people. In, yeah, oh. the the like the basic like a like a mini Korean genocide. Uh, yeah, yeah, intense. Well, that is it for us today. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, and Instagram, and Happen Your Pod and Cool Zone Media. Uh, see you next week. And go listen to podcasts. We have many of them. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening.
Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.